welcome back to Almost Familiar. I'm Wes Johnson, and as always, I'm sitting with my good friend, Elizabeth Dreesen. Tuning in here from the apocalypse over here, I'm in the Bay Area where it's really smoky, terrible air quality as it's been for days, creepy orange skies, but we're hanging in there and trying not to get too claustrophobic here. Ugh, gosh, I'm so sorry that's what's going on over there. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm at least grateful that we're not in immediate dangers from um, the fires, but it's still, you know, I absolutely love living out here, but the past three years that we've been here, there's been, you know, at least a week or two of terrible air quality and fires mm. all around us. And it kind of makes me think that it's not a sustainable place to live. And also when it's like this, I'm like, I can't believe I pay so much fucking money to live out here. I know. It's like the New York City of the West, yes. price-wise. Yeah. Everything else is different. <laughs> Everything else is different. And yeah. it really it really takes a long time to adjust to. But um that was that was a fun thing that we that we talked about a little bit with uh our friend B Getz, who we interviewed on this episode. He's also a Bay Area cat, originally from where was he from originally again? Was it Florida? Originally from Philly. From Philly, that's right. But um he's been out here in the Bay Area for I think thirteen years or something. I was shocked that I hadn't run into him yet. But once, you know, if this whole thing clears up i'm excited to hang out with him in person yeah man he's a cool cat it was really cool getting to interview him just because i have like had very quick loose conversations with him throughout the years but we've never you know done the formal thing where he's got a podcast called the up for life which he talks about and that's kind of how i started becoming familiar with him where he just has a a really interesting background and he really talks about his experience and his life's journey on our podcast which i was i'd never heard and it was a really fascinating captivating story but you know his podcast is a very musical based podcast and he's one of those dudes it's kind of like Questlove, just a musical historian but like of our weird little niche scene so i always appreciate that but you know um going back you know before you we started recording you were telling me you're going to a drive-in show and that it was canceled and i was thinking like why would it be canceled but then i'm like oh right the whole air crisis who, who was the show gonna be what were you gonna see we were supposed to go see the California Honey Drops. It would have been my first time oh, seeing them. That's right. It was going to be in Vallejo, which is close to Napa Valley, for those of you who don't know, just at the fairgrounds or something. Mm. But um, we were really looking forward to it. And it was just so disappointing to finally have like a live music thing to look forward to and then to have it taken away, not from those quickly changing government regulations, because I know that's something that's been a struggle for you, having worked a couple of drive-in shows and attended. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, just from the air quality, and I totally understand why they did it. Um, they did live stream though last night, so that was That's that cool. was fun to tune into. But, a little um, something. Yeah, still still disappointing. But I think my biggest question is because I, you know, they're going to reschedule once the air quality clears up. But we're really wondering how people get out of those shows once they're over. I'm just imagining this like enormous traffic clusterfuck. I know you've worked a couple, right? So can you just mm-hmm. explain that to me so that it alleviates my anxiety about it a little bit? For sure. I mean, I can't speak to what other venues are doing, but I've attended, I think, three drive-in concerts just as a patron. And then we as a company have hosted two, doing two more this weekend. And for us, you know, they're held at traditional drive-in venues. So the exiting is just like a regular drive-in theater where there's one way in there's one way out and it's really pretty self-explanatory um you know after our pigeons playing ping pong show we did have a couple of spunnians who were a little lost but for the most part pretty easy to find your way out of there 
So did you work the Pigeons Playing Ping Pong show or did you attend it? I mean, I guess you would have attended it if you worked it, but were you a patron or working? I was working that one. That was one of our first shows we did. We did um, two nights of Pigeons Playing Ping Pong and it was cool. You know, the drive-in concert thing, it's, um, it's so bizarre and it just really makes you realize how you dystopian of a world we're living in you know but it's it's like you were saying you know it's most people's only chance to see live music and people are just itching for it so it's really cool that some promoters and bands are kind of being willing to take the chance and as long as it's being done safely you know i think it's a great thing in new york we've dealt with a lot of issues just because you know originally we were going to do mo at this big casino it was going to be 900 cars which sounds really scary, but, you know, Vernon Downs, the land is massive. You know, it's where they did Woodstock in 99. So every car would have had like a 20 by 20 foot section, which is by far larger than any other drive-in I've heard of in the nation. You know, that might be a bit of a stretch, but I, I feel confident in saying that. And it was a bummer that it got shut down by our governor. You know, New York's being really hard about the COVID stuff, which it's a really good thing, I think. And I know a lot of people are really upset about it. And, you know, to me, it is what it is. You know, I think we got to put safety first right now, but it was definitely uh, a big bummer, you know, and I'm seeing a, a lot of other of these drive-in venues are, they're running and they're giving people the space and, you know, so I hope that it's going like that everywhere, just because I don't want that to be something that we all have to lose moving forward. Yeah. Did Mo end up happening or was that no. postponed indefinitely? Wow. Yeah, it was a big bummer. I mean, there's a whole lot of other conspiracy theories that Cuomo was threatening to pull the casino's gaming license if we did the show. So there's, you know, there's some governmental susness going on there. But, you know, we, um, we're we trucking along, you know, we're talking to a new venue that's a pretty big apple orchard and hopefully we'd be able to do shows in their big parking lot and do about like 500 or so people with, you know, like 15 by 15 foot section. So, you know, but we're trying, you know, same with other venues and, you know, well, it comes up at the end of our conversation with B gets, but, you know, I'd like to address it in the forward. It's just that, you know, a lot of venues are struggling. A lot of promoters are struggling and a lot of bands are struggling. And the easiest thing that people can do to help is to go to saveourstages.com. And it's a, sta- uh, a website, excuse me, that's run by this group called NEVA, which stands for the National Independent Venue Association. And it literally takes less than a minute. You just plug in your info and then wherever you're at, it'll automatically send letters to Congress, which is pushing this act called the Save Our Stages Act, which would go out to help venues. And um, we actually had Chuck Schumer, our senator, stop by the Westcott actually last week and talk about it, which was really cool. And um, what I didn't know about it is some venues could receive up to $12 million in aid, which is, you know, huge because there's at least 12 million people in the live music industry that are out of work now, you know, and B gets is one of those people. He's a full-time music journalist. You know, he talks about his story, but you know, he used to be working with jam bass and live for live music. And just, he's one of those people like myself who are just now out of work, you know, and we're doing what we can. I believe he's working on a cannabis farm and you know, I took a job at Texas roadhouse, you know, we're, we're doing what we can do. But saveourstages.com is a really good place for all of our listeners to head and just make your voice heard because a lot of these venues are starting to shut down and it's only a matter of time before all of them are shut down and drive-ins are the only options we have. And I just, I don't even want to think about that world. So one thing that really stuck out to me from our talk with B. Getz was his story of his first Grateful Dead show, which I think his sister or stepsister took him to. And I think he said that he was sitting next to a 40-year-old deadhead who kind of knew everything. 
And that person gave him a lot of contacts and kind of showed him the way and how you're supposed to behave at dead shows and kind of what it was all about, what the songs mean and stuff. And it felt like the rest of our conversation was him returning the favor because he kind of schooled us about the culture that we've been experiencing. And it made me think that, you know, besides, besides what we're doing right now to ask people to fill in the blanks for us and to give us a more holistic perspective, when I was first getting into the scene, I didn't have that older veteran person. It was all people our age and we were all, you know, I think we kind of learned the hard way where we made a mistake or got too fucked up or acted like a fool at a show. And that's how we kind of learned and found our way. But we didn't have that, at least I didn't have that older veteran. And I think that's something that people could really use. So now that I am older, definitely not the oldest in the scene, but maybe, you know, a little bit older, certainly than I was, I definitely find myself inclined to be that kind of person within certain contexts. Like I, I think we've been talking about how I've been getting into harm reduction and consent culture over the last year or so. And that's kind of what I want to educate people about. But I think, I think I've noticed that with, with certain people that the, the more that you get into it, you kind of choose something that you want to pass down. Yeah. I mean, that's a great insight. And, um, you know, that's, as you said it, I literally thought that was like my first kind of experience with B is that he was, this, cause he's older now, you know, now he's in his forties and, you know, you and I are both in our late twenties and, you know, we got in the scene, we're just booing around partying, like, you know, definitely focusing on the music, but there's also all these other substances going on. And, you know, that was certainly on our minds, but him and I, once we connected on Facebook, when I started working with live for live music, um, very part-time. I've made it sound like I'm a full-timer there, but I've been lucky enough to do some stuff for them, mostly in the Pretty Lights realm. But, you know, he was that person. You know, I would see how he would speak about music and just because he he talks about it a lot. You know, he's in a lot of different scenes. You know, he goes to New Orleans Jazz Fest every year for the last almost like plus 10 years. You know, he goes to Swanee Hulaween a bunch. He's very into the Bay community and the jam scene and into like the underground bass scene. And it's been really cool to have someone like him that gives a lot of stuff context, you know, where especially when I think about it in terms of pretty lights, it's, you know, a lot of samples that are used from very different eras that I personally was relatively unfamiliar with. And these are the kind of things that B is like super into, you know, very original soul and funk music. And he's just, like you said, he schooled us and it was incredible. And I appreciate him for that. And I'm definitely a bit of a B gets fanboy, And I think it comes out in my, the podcast episode a little bit. So just so everybody knows, I'm a huge fan of this dude. The way he speaks, the way he writes, I think is just transcends space and time for me. And I was really excited we got to sit down and chat with him and hear so much from him. Yeah, so we're excited to pass it on to all you that are listening. And thank you so much for sticking with us and being here with us. And we hope you learn as much from our conversation with B Gets as we did. So without further ado, let's get familiar with this week's guest, B Gets. You are someone that when Elizabeth and I first kind of started talking about this project, I thought of that I wanted to speak to just because 
I think that you are the one of the most knowledgeable people kind of in the general scene, if you will, just because there are so many facets of our scene. But it seems like I'm always seeing you just contributing in a lot of these different zones. And I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, how did you get involved in the music scene? What kind of brought you into it all? And because you're not just a you're not your everyday music fan, man. You are you are about music. It's a lifestyle. Right on. Well, first of all, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I was really touched and honored that you thought that I would be a good guest. So I just wanted to, it doesn't happen every day. You know, I'm not used to being on this side of the equation. So, uh, yeah, just really was, was really honored that you thought that I would be an engaging guest for your sh- new show. And well, where do I start? Um, I was always kind of, a music guy. I mean, when I was young in elementary school, I was like obsessive about heavy metal and then, and then later hip hop, also professional wrestling and sports. And um, my mom fostered a lot of that. She took me to the orchestra, like the Philadelphia Orchestra near where I grew up in, in the Jersey side of Philly, Cherry Hill. So I was just around a lot of music and and I played, oh, I should acknowledge, I played piano for most of my childhood up through about 25 years old, uh, from like four years old, mostly classical till I got to be about 15. And then I started jamming and jazzing and such. So I guess, yeah, I just like sort of fostered a, a real passion for music and the culture. I was also really into reading uh, as a youth. So I had subscriptions to Rolling Stone and Spin and Cream, which was like the British Rolling Stone, and then later Relics and the sort of dead zines like Golden Road and books, you know, the Miles Davis biography when Garcia died, Garcia and American Life. All that kind of just formulated, you know, my passion for writing about music and live in it as you said that was a really kind way to put it so thanks um and then yeah just my my half sister my daughter excuse me my dad's daughter from his first marriage before my mom we never really were very close but she came back from college at cornell in 92 and took me to see the grateful dead i was 14 she was like 21 or 22 and that was obviously a really pivotal point in my life as just an impressionable young kid. And I loved the BC boys and I loved Metallica and Slayer and Pearl Jam a little bit. And then I went to see the dead um, and kind of changed my whole perception of what music as an experience, what a concert was. I'd been to a number of concerts before that, like arena shows for rock bands like Motley Crue and Metallica and Guns N' Roses and such. But uh, the dead kind of changed everything. So, yeah, most of my high school years were spent applying that sort of like baseball statistics minutia that I did about all that other stuff, like pro wrestling and heavy metal. And I just like dove deep into the Grateful Dead thing. And, and that's, I guess, how like my path started to what you were describing as far as like the different music scenes and such, like it really began with the dead. 
What was different about that Dead concert that you went to that was different from like the Guns N' Roses shows that you in the you know the heavy metal shows that you had been to before? I mean, well, like everything really. It was a it was a total community. Like I, I got to understand, like uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, a lot of ways for people to find out about this kind of stuff without actually going. We're talking pre-internet. And even though by 92, the Grateful Dead were, you know, playing stadiums and they were a huge band, they weren't like mainstream. So I was like wholesale unprepared for what was going to happen. I went with my cousin, who's like my brother I never had, and my half-sister. And we, I remember she sort of warned us when we got out of the car, like, it's going to be a circus freak show between here and the show. Like, be nice. People are going to be friendly. Don't take anything, no matter how friendly they are. Don't whatever they offer you, you know, that kind of little huddle. And then we went through the lot. And this is a, I grew up a Philly sports fan and this is the spectrum and then the shadows of the old veteran stadium. So I'd walked through these grounds with my cousin who went to the games with me our whole lives, but they had been like transformed into this carnival. And, and she was right. Everybody's energy was really positive and really welcoming, especially like we were youngins and probably wide-eyed and it was written on our foreheads that it was like our first show me and my cousin dan and uh yeah i mean there was sort of like a there was a familial welcoming sort of you found your people energy present before i even walked inside and then uh you know we went in the lights went down they opened with touch of gray and uh and there was an older guy next to me, who's a, maybe like as old as I am now, early 40s would be my guess in my mind's eye. And he was so kind and polite and schooled me as to the nature of what was being played in a very innocuous way. Wasn't like imposing, but just must have sensed that I was eager to know. And of course, you know, don't talk during the songs is rule number one. Don't smoke while someone's eating next to you. Like all these little polite concert isms that this man taught me. Plus, you know, why people were so euphoric about touch or how special the broke down encore was and all kinds of stuff that at 14, you know, I had skeletons in a closet, greatest hits on tape and had heard some stories from some older kids, but this was like nothing I'd ever experienced. And the reason it was different than Motley Crue or Guns N' Roses is because there was none of that aggressive machismo, primping, peacocking, self-awareness that defined like metal music, nor was there that like raging aggression, which I loved about Metallica and, and Slayer and later Rage Against the Machine and stuff. But it was devoid of that. It was replaced with a nurturing, welcoming, sort of like, let your free flag fly, you're welcome here. And then the music, you know, of course, was the greatest songbook I'd ever heard with these stories uh, delivered by these like aging, weathered, you know, veterans with uh, this history. And there was just so much depth there and nothing else mattered after that for a good while. You know, it just, I just wanted to know more about the dead, all the eras, all the players, 
what were the inspirations for the songs. And no matter how much I read or studied, there was more. There's still more. I mean, even now, 2020, we're still learning and studying. And, and that, so that was really just the keys to the kingdom. And, and eventually, you know, like Jerry died at 95. So I was really 14 to 17. You know, I didn't know shit about shit. At the time, I was really sort of getting hip to maybe the more profound or nuanced nature of the scene or the music or any of it. It was over. And that's when I sort of got into I was already seeing fish uh, a little bit in 95. I had seen them 12, 28, 94, and then June of 95. So three shows by the time Jerry died. And then I was young enough that I just pivoted. You know, I wasn't so far down the golden road with the dead where I was like allergic to fish. It was like, okay, now we'll do this. And that's uh, how my odyssey with the fish from Vermont sort of took off. I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's a really interesting point is there's just, it's one of those things where if you don't know about the scene, the second you get in, it's one of those first things you learn is like there seems to be this huge just bashing of heads between fish fans and dead fans so i'm curious in the 90s was it like that you know if were people like that back then did you have to subscribe to camp dead or camp fish or were there people that you felt were like you that also just were able to jump shift and appreciate fish for what they are it was definitely a thing i guess what i put it is definitely an age thing for starters um fish was by nature youthful younger full of this sort of vigor and almost an aggression at the time. I mean, machine gun tray for a reason, you know, they were meticulous and tight as nails and practiced and methodical and all these things that the Grateful Dead weren't yet. There were similarities in the improvisational approach in the scenes in the way the communities coalesced around the bands, but there's definitely a division so much so that in the summer, in the summer of 95, on the last Grateful Dead tour, the lyric, I know you've been cheating on me, uh, Ramble and Rose, they would flash the old fish sign up on the, on the uh, like Jumbotron, where they would, you'd be watching the band. Just like a little joke. That's hilarious. And, but it was true. Because honestly, as much as I love the Grateful Dead, and I would say even more than the fish, I love them both, by 95 and really the last couple of years, they were asleep at the wheel. Garcia was struggling, that it was a money thing. There was a lot, I don't want to go down that whole rabbit hole, but Fish, on the other hand, was just hitting their stride. They'd been a band for like a little less than a decade and made the jump from like theaters to sheds and then later arenas. So one band was like on its way out and one band was just launching. So a lot of the older deadheads, I mean, deadheads by nature were stuck in their ways. They only listened to the dead. And because they had such a voluminous, you know, tape archive and shows, you could spend your whole life only listening to the dead. But they were very old school deadheads were usually really stringent in particular. And especially Fish was like an affront to them, like the loudness, the energy, the, and also like 90s Fish was really geeky. There was like secret languages with the audience and all kinds of like hokey jokes. And of course the vacuum cleaner stuff that, you know, you look back on now with like a fondness, but you try to explain like what an ACDC bag was to an older deadhead. And they look at you like you've got two heads. 
you know it just was like a disconnect there and and i think that fish spent most of their 1.0 and a good portion of 2.0 or all of it i would say trying to outrun the shadow of the monolith that was the grateful dead because they were forever you know to the layman or the average music fan it was they were the new dead but it couldn't be further from the truth and i think that conversely trey and fish but mostly trey if you look at the movie like bittersweet motel he's like reading uh a bad review of one of his shows and he snaps about you know like basically says f jerry garcia in so many words like i'm not them we're not the grateful dead you could tell that like the the tag you know irked him and so they did whatever they could to in essence like go their own way to borrow a phrase and i wasn't until they were well established as their own entity you know like years and years and years of madison square garden and big cypress and festivals and sold out tours and a career that nearly is you know 30 years grateful dead same length so i think eventually they got comfortable and so comfortable that trey stepped into the the Garcia role for fairly well. And I think that that was sort of like the period at the end of that sentence, as if to say, like, in, from Braveheart, unite the clans. Like, we are now, like, it's all good. And uh, I think that most people that maybe harbored that resentment to fish either just never got down or eventually acquiesced. And, and you know, that's cool. I think the, the stupid band, my band is better than your band stuff is corny was corny then i've certainly participated in it through the years but i try to avoid it now it's corny so yeah that was a long way of saying that yes there was a major division back then and it took a lot of deadheads a long time to get with the fish program and that's understandable because garcia's the loss was so huge the void so gaping that in their grief in their confusion they projected that at fish or really more of their fans and i to be honest with you man it still goes on because when i moved out here to california and i went to work on this random weed farm and there's a bunch of like third generation dead kids who weren't even alive when jerry was alive but they swear by the dead and play it all the time and it's like a religion to them and they were like spewing fish hatred and these you know who's didn't know nothing about nothing it's just what they heard all those years growing up it's like almost like racism you know it's just like what they heard from their people and they parrot it on so i would say it's more the exception not the rule but it lives yeah definitely it's something that i think you see within the scene today and the scene that's kind of grown out of the grateful dead and that's grown out of fish i think kind of in the era that me and Wes have kind of grown up in and that we've been exposed to, I kind of have seen that animosity between the pretty light scene and the base nectar scene, for example. I mean, and base nectar is of course this like fallen sexual predator icon now, but I just, those were the two kind of like diametric paradigms of like the generation that I, I kind of like grew up in when I was like exposed to the scene in, in the early 2010s, I guess. And I know I've noticed animosity among the fan bases the whole time, the whole time that I've that I've been in that I've been a part of this scene. And I wonder if something similar will happen now that Bass Nectar is this like fallen icon, that something similar to what happened with Jerry Garcia. Like I know they kind of fell for 
very, very different reasons. But I wonder if there's a parallel in the sense that like there's this whole enormous fan base of bass actors that like doesn't really know what to do or where to go now. And I wonder if like when live music comes back, I wonder where they're going to go and how they're going to act. Yeah, I mean, definitely different dichotomy, but certainly I see the, the, the sort of parallel you draw there, especially with the animosity and the energy between fan bases. Difference being, in some ways, uh, you know, Pretty Lights and Derek and Lauren Bass Nectar were peers, uh, roughly, you know, like of the same era. It wasn't generational. And I would, I would you know, I'd have, you know, how can I phrase this? I always thought that the single-mindedness of deadheads that made them adverse to other music or other life opportunities, and, and that translated to Fish a lot too, where, I mean, I spent every last penny I had trying to go to Fish shows and at the expense of lots of other great experiences. And I think that you see that on a much more troubling and just greater scale with space connector in terms of the level of devotion or deification, like kind of rivaled the way the deadheads were about Garcia, where, you know, this reluctant sort of champion from the music realm gets uh, lifted to this perch where, you know, they're all of a sudden seen as a leader and any of those kind of things. And, and Garcia recoiled at that, and Lauren kind of stepped into it and and manicured this very expertly crafted public persona, rich in you know anti-establishment defiance and feminism and and what we've learned is that he was a flawed human like anyone else, and maybe even more than most of us, and uh, the harm that he did to women and. And I guess by proxy to his fans who believed in him, you know, they're, they're, they're left to ponder, like, what were they believing in and what were they a part of? And I don't think that really happened with the dead. I mean, everyone knew Jerry was killing himself. There wasn't harm in anyone else. Uh, and we're kind of left to say, what, what if? But with, uh, with Bass Nectar, I, A, I think the fan base is a lot younger, less experienced. There's all kinds of emotions wrapped up in this stuff for like young people in terms of uh, relationships and sexual activity and social activity. And you throw in the immediacy and cruelty of social media and the internet and how things spread. And, you know, I, I, I found Bass Nectar fans, uh, for the most part, to kind of be abhorrent when they would be at festivals, the way they behaved and treated others. And it never seemed to align with who Lauren portrayed himself to be. But at the same time, my heart kind of aches for them because they're probably lost souls right now, which speaks to the fact that they, they put themselves in a position where so much of their, you know, selves are wrapped up in this one artist. But at the same time, like most of them, you know, probably like, what the, what the hell? where do I go? And I don't think that they'll just flock to pretty lights. I think that there's like a, I have, I love bass music. I also love pretty lights type music. I'm not really a fan of bass nectar, but I, I love bass music. And I just, I don't see like the connection there. I just think that they were both really big at the same time. 
and had like massive followings and and I would even look at you know you you guys are from the pretty light diaspora and you know Derek Vincent Smith was pretty deified and hoisted up to a perch and you know in some ways his own story parallels Garcia's and he's also taken the time to step away from music and and you know work on himself whatever that is and I commend him for that and I also commend the Pretty Lights community because most of them have like you guys are great examples just spread your wings and all that music that you found through Pretty Light samples or the people that you met at the shows you're still connected with them and you're going to see other music and having other experiences that you might not have had if you were still you know totally into Pretty Lights all the time so I think you know maybe Bass Nectar's fan base could learn a thing or two if they could humble themselves and not be so aggro all the time and so sort of aggressive and maybe just say, hey, like, wow, these Pretty Lights fans are still out dancing. They're going to see other artists and they're still loving music and loving life. And, you know, if and when Derek comes back, we'll show up, but we're not, you know, ready to drive off a cliff because he disappeared. So my answer, Elizabeth, would be, I think they would learn something more from Pretty Lights, the Bass Nectar fans, from the Pretty Lights community, than maybe more so than the Grateful Dead. Wow. Man, I got to say, one of my favorite things about, you know, the way that I became familiar with you is through your writing with Live for Live Music. And your way with prose, just, it's intoxicating. So it's so much fun. I love listening to your podcast for that same reason. And you always have such a, a great way of breaking down these complex topics into really enjoyable you know, very easy, palatable conversations as well. So just taking a quick break to say I'm floored by you in that sense. Uh, kind of you to say that, man. You yeah. Know, thanks for listening to the show. And, you know, I know you've always been supportive. So I was happy to come on and, and yours and chat it up. And yeah, Live for Life Music was a really huge step for me. You know, I'd been, uh, I wrote for Jam Bass for the longest time, long before I knew you or really was, you know, in the, in the same sort of like, I don't know, pretty lights extended community, you know, that, that I kind of, I kind of came to that through Deitch's involvement. Right. So from 2000, from late 99 to 2014, I wrote for jam base, you know, pre really at the early stages of internet, like journalism or whatever you want to call it pre blogging era. And so I, I appreciate that people have like supported what I did for a long time in one way or another and continues. Uh, so I give thanks for anyone who reads the stuff that I'm able to put out. But I, you know, I, and I know like people say live for live music and I love live for live music and I'm, that's my team, but I wouldn't be, you know, doing this if it wasn't for jam base. Uh, you know, I, that I wrote a, review of a fish show for fish.net back in the you know listserv and forum message board era 99 and somebody emailed me from gadiel.com andy gadiel who's one of the founders of jambase had a fish page gadiel.com backslash fish that was really popular and he also had one gadiel.com backslash simpsons so he was sort of like a pioneer not sort of he was a pioneer for the jam scene in the internet and I got an email saying hey we really like 
what you had to say, or I see you're in Burlington, Vermont. That's where I was going to college, Champlain College in Burlington. And that's where Fish is from. So we're going to do this sort of it's jam based. So it's going to be like dead base, the book, uh, dead base. If you're not familiar or your listeners was like an encyclopedia of dead shows and reviews. They put out like 10 volumes during the dead's career. And it would be like set lists and images of ticket subs, venue history, all that kind of stuff. So that was the blueprint. That was the base side of it. And then jam was, okay, it's more than the dead and it's more than just fish. It's the jam bands, which was a pretty nascent term in its infancy in 99 so it was like hey we're doing this thing called jam bass we need a guy in burlington and i was now mind you i told you all that stuff about music and, and whatever with me as a kid and i even was on my high school newspaper editor edit, editorial staff for half a year where i did write a little something about jerry when he passed and shannon hoon from blind melon who passed shortly thereafter but i wasn't a writer i didn't consider myself a writer but I guess I had it inside me. I did those fish reviews, jam base hollered. I was in Burlington. So like Fishman would show up here. Trey would show up there. I would fire off a couple paragraphs. And then they were like, it doesn't have to be fish connected. And, you know, so I started just checking out other shows and writing reviews on jam base. And um, that was in 99. And then I went to jazz fest in new Orleans in 2000 for the first time and met a bunch of the people from jam base down there in person, specifically Deanne Herman. She's now Deanne Berkowitz, uh, Dan Berkowitz from like the Consider Dan CID company. So before she was the queen of CID, she was one of the opening team of Jambase. And I met her outside of a show on Canal Street. She tried to hand my late friend, Andrew, a Jambase sticker. He said, my boy works for Jambase. And now mind you, she, she ran that shit. So she's like, oh yeah, who's your boy? pointed at me and the rest is history. She facilitated everything for me early on. Tickets, connections for interviews. She read my stuff, published it, gave me all the confidence to like go out there and do this. And that Jazz Fest, you know, I went down there for Oysterhead, the first ever Oysterhead show. Like I said, I was fish crazy. I loved Primus. And I heard that they were doing this super fly, super jam uh, with Oysterhead, super group. So I, uh, I paid more than face value, a bunch more, and I traded 10 fish soundboard CDRs. Back then, soundboards weren't as prevalent, and there was no live fish. So like 10 soundboard shows not in circulation was a good bounty. And I mailed this girl the CDs and the cash, and she sent me the ticket to Oysterhead, and then I flew myself down to New Orleans, where I'd been once for fish in 99, but I didn't know shit about shit. And... Um, basically the Oysterhead show was like the fifth best show I saw that week. And, uh, I just, it was a, like the Grateful Dead thing, it, uh, shows as a, as a youngster, uh, in 2000, I had been to big Cypress. So like the fish thing had come to this apex. I started writing for jam base a few months and then I went to jazz fest and it was like, here's a new kingdom. Uh, how, you know, sort of uh, galaxy to frolic of music. And, and basically the writing thing, like Jazz Fest opened up those doors. I didn't cover 2000 because I just got there, but starting in 02, I started to write about Jazz Fest. And, and a little before that, I was writing about festivals like uh, 
Burkefest was one in Great Barrington, Mass, that I covered for a couple of years for Jambesa. Was lucky to be on the first Bonnaroo team for Jambase. Drove to Tennessee from Philly with my hometown crew and got to do the, which was born out of the Superfly Super Jam. The same company, Superfly, was like, we could do late night New Orleans on a farm in Tennessee. And that's how Bonnaroo was born. So I got to do that and through that met more people and, uh, and really, you know, used Jambase as a vehicle for me to create. A portfolio. I wasn't making much money, but I was doing all the things. Um, and that's sort of how that chapter of my life slash career started. I was living in Philly, deep into the Roots thing. The Roots were like the hometown heroes. They had a Tuesday night women's hip-hop night called Black Lily at the five spot in Old City, Philadelphia. So when I wasn't chasing fish around, and then they went on hiatus, uh, I was going to anything Roots-related in Philly. And then, of course, you know, through Jazz Fest, I had found So Live, Galactic, um, and eventually Lettuce. Um, but I didn't, you know, the Lettuce thing didn't happen for me till 2008. But in the early days, it was like So Live. Carl Denson's Tiny Universe was my number one. Um, they were playing like really black music, authentic, uh, just full of that sort of D'Angelo vibe. I'd gone to one D'Angelo show in 2000, which also was like life-changing with Questlove on drums, the Pino on bass, this classic Soultronics band. And like Denson sort of channeled that really awesome, super sexy black funk R&B vibe. So Denson was like pivotal for me. And that kind of takes us, you know, quite a few years of my journey, just writing for jam bass, running around the Eastern seaboard, going to Jazz Fest, made it to High Sierra in 03. And then I developed a debilitating drug addiction for a while. Uh, which is not a secret, which is why I speak freely about it. Um, I feel like I would be a lot further along today had I not lost so many years to, like, pills and Oxycontin and stuff. It was sort of just like what Trey went through, only it took me a good while longer to see my way out of that darkness. But, yeah, that basically gets me to uh, moving to Florida in 2008 and going to Bear Creek, and that's how, like, I connected with Lettuce. Wow. Well, I mean, I'm really glad to hear that you were one of the people that was fortunate enough to make it through drug addiction just because, you know, that is something that's pretty rampant regardless in the music community. And, you know, it's really tough because, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but was it something that stemmed from, you know, it initially starts as partying and fun and then it's just that downtime you fill it with whatever to get by. But, you know, so I'm, I guess the long way around that is I'm glad to hear you're doing well. And I think it definitely makes you a more well-rounded person just to experience those kind of lows to appreciate the true highs. Yeah, I mean, it was a long winding road, like successes, setbacks. You know, for many years, I, I just always loved popping a few perks or whatever and going out to the shows. It was just my thing. And I managed it for years. Um you know, flirted with disaster, but it never came. And then, you know, that's a story only ends really a couple of ways. They seem to end, you know, they say like dead in jail or get off of it. So I ended up going to jail unrelated, but that was years later. But that's kind of what finally broke me as far as using drugs like that. But yeah, it wasn't just like I got over it, man. And I, I want to be clear, like it's still not that I haven't used in over four years, but um, it's, it's a, every day. It's like why I'm talking about it now. It's why I just had a DM conversation yesterday with this girl I'd never met because she's going through her journey in a certain stage and I could be a resource to her. Somebody hears this 
I was like, wow, that dude fucking lived through that. And look at him now. Like, if that can be inspiration to somebody, great. And also, people check me. People remember that me. And just, you know, if they think I'm pushing the pedal to the metal, you know, they might say something. And I want to hear that something. You're only as sick as your secrets. So I have had an amazing, blessed, beautiful, fortunate, very privileged, colorful journey. But I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge, like, the flaws and failures along the way. And, and yeah, eventually, after, like, managing the pills, like, you know, I couldn't. And, I, you know, and then I just was like, the oxys came first. And, you know, I burned some bridges and I lost some privileges. And, you know, it took, it took me moving to Florida. Well, the first time I got it together, I moved to Florida in 08, cut my dreadlocks off to sort of turn the page started anew. I was like selling furniture. That was my gig to, to get by my boss. Fucking really epic, crazy maniac dude who had 20 some years in sobriety was like, I'm, I'm going to relocate you to Florida. So put the pill guy in the pill capital of the U S but it worked, you know, I, I got off of it for a few years, a couple, like a, two years. And it was like when I went to bear Creek, um, very like cosmic story of how I ended up at this festival um, the very first year, just a friend I met on the beach in Jacksonville Beach where I ended up living for five years um, told me about this festival in the woods. He's like, you wrote for Jam Bass, you would love it there. And that was an understatement of a lifetime. My man Otis, Chris is his name. Uh, he took me to Swanee for the Bear Creek inaugural Bear Creek in 2008, November. And Lettuce had just released Rage. I'd seen them twice before, but they weren't like anything on my super radar. But I had been through so much and nearly, you know, shit got really dark for me in Philly in like 06, 07. So to be in the woods and amidst all this music and, and sort of returning, I had even missed two jazz fests, you know, 06 and 07. That's how bad it got from me. I always go to jazz fest. It's the thing I've stuck with my whole life. This would have been my 17th year this year had they not canceled it. But I didn't go those two years, and I was really lost soul in general. And I got to Swanee and got to Bear Creek and met Paul Levine, who who's the sort of the Paul the Wolf as he's called, but he's the the talent buyer and the sort of spiritual and and managerial force behind Bear Creek and also a partner in Swami Halloween and throws the Purple Hatters ball or did for 10 years. He's, he's a major cat down there at Swanee. And for whatever reason, right away, he took me under his wing, uh, not in a business capacity, but just like sharing in the groove uh, introductions. I wrote like a really passionate article about Bear Creek 2009, uh, which really just solidified our bond and and he's been instrumental in sort of opening doors for me uh first and foremost lettuce he gave me the opportunity to frolic backstage and wherever i really wanted to at bear creek and i wasn't like after the party i was after i was like i want to get my groove back with being a writer and a journalist and chronicling the culture so i took that hand off and ran and and that was like the next chapter was was living in Florida and Swanee sort of being our home base for festivaling and 
I got myself right. I was surfing a lot and I was writing a lot for jam bass covering all kinds of shit down there. Like the roots when they came down steely Dan, of course, all the festivals at Swanee, a couple fish shows, which I hadn't done in forever. And, uh, yeah, life was good. And then it wasn't. And I got cocky and, you know, started getting fucked up the wrong way again. And, uh, I moved home to Philly because my dad got very sick and sort of left Florida behind. And so I found myself in Philly for a few years. My writing fell off again. I wasn't doing that much of it. And I was back to bad ways and sort of watching my dad's dementia in front of my eyes. And it was just a really dark time for me. Uh, And that's kind of how I fell down the second time. And then uh, my dad gave me the blessing to move to California. My mom was not stoked, but, uh, you know, my dad, one of the last really cohesive conversations that we had was, uh, he was like, don't sit here and watch me, like, go live, spread your wings. That's why I raised you. And, uh, you know, that's what I needed to hear. So I got on a plane and went straight to Burning Man, 2013. Similar thing, like, uh, uh, as 2008 and Swanee in the sense that I was at a loss. I had very little. I, my dignity was lacking my self-worth and had no direction home, as they say. And a dear friend had just like, you got to do Burning Man. You need it. Like, it, it's just so you and it will inspire you. And, and I kind of like always was like, yeah, this is some EDM party. And really wrote it off. And then I was at, a, at my wit's end. And my dad said, go, spread your wings. And someone lined up a ticket, which I later learned was pretty hard to come by. And literally packed up all these duffel bags, not just for Burning Man, but for good. And I flew to Reno. And then I hitchhiked from the Reno airport to Burning Man. And then I had to hitchhike into Burning Man because, you know, they can't drive you in. You know, these people just pick people up or hitchhiking and you pay them they take you to the gate so i found my way into burning man after like this 60 hour journey and i really didn't know what to expect and i had another like awakening of preposterous proportions and it was like here's a whole new universe of music and art and humans that you were so lost in you know your self-awareness and fucking the bottom of a pill bottle and all this energy I was putting in the wrong places. And it was like, look, look around. And that sort of was the next chapter. The current chapter, I would say, started at Burning Man in 2013. And I came back. And one of the last articles I wrote for Jambase was about my first burn and the music I encountered and how the sort of lineage I noticed between the psychedelic community of the dead and the Haight-Ashbury of the late 60s and what had sprung out of the the kids of that era in terms of Black Rock City and Burning Man and and that much like the Grateful Dead, you know, like the, the Burning Man experience has been the gift that keeps on giving, musically, culturally, otherwise. It's a very privileged thing and it's not the be all end all and I've kind of become less like you must go to Burning Man. Uh, just because I recognize how privileged it is and kind of how wasteful it is, but it's also a hub for brilliant people and 
the greatest artists, the most inspired artists and, and freaks of all kinds and radical inclusion. And, you know, it just hit me at the right time in my life when I was really lost and, and needed to be shown the light. And, and that's what happened with Burning Man. And coincidentally, once I moved to California, like my relationship with lettuce, strangely just went to another place it has nothing to do with burning man it just coincided with my moving to the west coast i kind of became one of their homies out here and we'd always had a good rapport you know like going back to the bear creek days but it definitely transitioned into something more personal more friendship more family i'd even say uh over the past five six years you know, like I ended up getting in trouble for a while when I was out here in ganja farmland and went to jail for a year. And, you know, I would talk to people on the phone, talk to Ryan Zoidis, talk to Nikki Glassby from Power, and they would like, you know, give me strength and, and really like tell me funny stories or tell me spiritual ideas or just listen to me. And and I really leaned hard on the music community during that year. And my dad died while I was in there. And when I came out, uh, all the different facets of my life, the early days from the Fish era through the Jazz Fest crews and the Swanee fam, and then my sort of West Coast festival fam from Burning Man and Lightning in a Bottle and Symbiosis and Eclipse and Envision, all these incredible places that I'd been in and ingratiated myself to the cultures and communities of these different places and events, they were all waiting for me with open arms and huge hugs and opportunity and love and forgiveness. And, uh, and I just, you know, that's, and, and part of that uh, was a, a clean slate and, and love jam base and had an amazing run. And I've said that wouldn't, have happened for me without them and all the different people there. But when I got out of jail after that year in, I went to Halloween about two weeks later, not to write an article, just as a welcome home party. And that's really what it was. Wherever I went, it was just the most amazing love bombs and tears from the stage to the rage. I feel, you know, I get chills thinking about it. But while I was at a, while I was at that hula, just Kunj and Sarah, who, you know, run Live for Live Music and Kunj is a founder, they just sort of casually approached me and said, hey, if you're going to get back to the writing thing, if you're not going to do jam bass, we would love to have you. And it was just cosmic at the moment, three in the morning at this after party in the woods, in the, in the beloved Swanee forest. It just felt right. And, you know, after 14 years of jam bass and a year in jail, I was like, maybe that's the page turn. And, and yeah, you know, like, Lettuce and Live for Live Music have a great thing for a long time. It was a very symbiotic thing where I fell into place there. And, and also being out here on the West Coast, it's just a different spin on things uh, than, say, a New York or a Denver. And all of those elements, and I'm sure I'm missing a few, certainly a few people, um, that's how I got to this point, you know, where I, I still work on the weed farms. I'm not doing the gangster shit that's sending me to jail, but I still go and work for an hourly wage out in the farms. It's like therapeutic and spiritual and meditative 
but I, I have to say, and I say it humbly, like I'm a working journalist, really, like for, you know, really the first time ever, I actually, you know, in, support myself through this work. And I would have never believed it was possible. I either sold furniture or sold weed or did some shit on the side um, to pay the bills. And and now that's more like for breathing room. And I, I have a number of projects that I'm involved with, you know, behind the scenes stuff where it's not journalism, but I write it. I just don't put my name on it. But I get, you know, compensated fairly. And, you know, that's kind of a long-winded uh, version of this story, but that's kind of all the little errors and all the different things that happened to me along the way uh, that sort of taught me lessons, you know, and I feel like if I didn't get strung out on oxys, I didn't go to jail and it didn't cost me my dignity and the last time with my father and all that stuff, you know, could break someone. It could send me back to drugs. Uh, it could estrange me from my community or my family. All those things are entirely possible and might've gone that way for, if not for, you know, just being lucky and fortuitous and loved and lifted up. So yeah, it's essential to not just like sugarcoat. Uh, it's a long, strange trip, how great it is. It's been amazing, but also, you know, the, the stumbles and falls and, and mistakes you know, that that's really what gave me the the ability to kind of get here. I think I probably would have given up before if I hadn't completely unraveled. Yeah, thank you so much for being so honest and for candidly sharing your story like that. I, I know it's not easy, but I think you're right when you said before that, you know, sharing your struggles with addiction can really help someone that's in that same place. And, you know, I'll meet you there with your, with your honesty, because I, your, your story really resonated with me because I had kind of a parallel experience, I'd say with moving out to the West coast myself, I've been here for about three years. I live in San Francisco and lightning in a bottle had a huge impact on me. But what was happening with me before was that I was, um, I was raped when I was 17, about 10 years ago next month. And it completely derailed my life too. It just, it, you know, in a, in a very, very different way, of course, but um, I struggled with alcohol addiction and, um, or not addiction, but, but certainly, certainly abuse. Um, and, you know, very irresponsible drug use as well. And I was completely just trying to dissociate from the memory. And then I successfully did so for about eight years. And, I, and the worst part about it was that I stopped writing because I used to really, really want to be a journalist. And I, that's why I went to Syracuse. Wes and I met at Syracuse University, upstate New York. I, uh, got into the journalism program there and I was totally set on this awesome track, but the rape just completely derailed me and my sense of identity and just my dignity. But when I, something happened at lightning in a bottle, I really, it's so fucking hard for me to describe, but I really had this profound, great awakening when I moved out here. It's something about the West coast and the Bay area, but I was finally able to, to face my past and work through things. And the, honestly, the best part about it is that like, I'm finally writing again. I just find San Francisco so fucking inspiring, but I guess what I want to ask you is what, you know, you were talking about Burning Man and how you had this profound awakening there. What, what has to happen to have that, you know, like what, what is it about these festivals, whether it's Burning Man or Lightning in a Bottle or Bear, 
Creek, any of the Swanee festivals, you know, it can happen at any festival, but what, what has to happen to have these profound awakenings? Cause I'm, I'm sure you and I aren't alone in that. No, we certainly aren't. And, you know, thanks for that vulnerable share as well. And I certainly cannot identify with it, but I empathize with you and I appreciate you meeting me there. And yeah, it sounds like you have, you know, at least been able to frame it in a way where you recognize the devastating effect that incident had on your life, but it, it's not going to own you. And that's, I guess, the parallel I would draw from like going to jail. Cause I'm, I'm right across the bridge. I'm in the East Bay. Before that, I was in Grass Valley in Nevada City for five years, save for the year that uh, I did the time in Placer County. But I mean, I, I would say, first off, Bernie, I love LIB and I love what the quote unquote transformational festival is. I loved Envision the couple years I went there and had really magical and transformative exp experiences. And I would say the same for Lightning in a Bottle. And Burning Man, it, they are children of Burning Man, those events and those communities. Um, but Burning Man is, is not a festival. And I know that's trite and everyone says it, but it's true. So I, I, I feel like I can't pigeonhole Burning Man in the same uh, sort of category, but you can have a transformative experience at a, at a festival like LIB and, and Symbiosis was great for that. And, and I've noticed, you know, Bear Creek was really about just four stages of relentless funk or jam, occasionally hip hop, but there wasn't like a workshop or educational element to Bear Creek. Halloween, because they have like uh, Andy Carroll was their art director, might still be, but was for a while. And he's an old school burner and he's a presence in all the huge, big art you see that sort of travels the festival circuit. A lot of it makes it to LIB. And I noticed like the consciousness moving in that direction. Electric Forest has some, of course, and, and Swanee Halloween, but they're, you know, and I say this respectfully because I love Hula and I love Spirit of Swanee, but the, the cultural climate, the consciousness is light years away, or I would even, dare I say, behind what we're blessed and fortunate to experience here on the West Coast. So to answer your question specifically, I mean, it's not like what people need to formulate the experience. I think you only need an open mind and the ability to surrender. So like an, a younger version of me that showed up in Burning Man uh, in 2013, I was 35. So had I got there at 25 or even 30 or 32, forget the drugs, just like my bullheadedness, my my whatever narcissism self-confidence that made me think I was always at where it was at and the shit so like I wouldn't even hear of you know some music like just like we talked about earlier with the bullheaded bass nectar fans or like stuck in the dirt dead fans like I thought I knew what was hot in the streets and you couldn't tell me nothing so like that kind of person can't really plug in that kind of mindset I should say doesn't jive with the transformational festival and certainly not burning man burning man is you know there's schedules where people play at certain sound camps but it's really just a free-for-all and you you go around meeting people eating drinking being merry all kinds of nefarious stuff nudity hypersexualization big art performance art and 
it's the it's not anything like the festival other like a like a transformational festival other than the people and maybe some of the look or the attire and the consciousness certainly so i think that it requires i mean it's really good to be lost to have those just to have those experiences forget burning man like you said wherever to be at an impasse it's almost harder to surrender when you are at you know full strength or have a full tank of gas or at your peak self um it's when you're slowed down and you're willing to stop and listen or your faith in what you know or what you believe uh may be tested and you're open to hearing about something else i mean electronic music is the perfect example i loved ltj bookham and jungle when i was young and I love Sound Tribe Sector 9 when they're just Sector 9 and they played Hard Jungle in the early 2000s. But I turned my nose up at house and to a lesser extent, bass music. And, you know, Pretty Lights opened the door. But really, it wasn't until I got to be at Burning Man at 35 and again, totally surrendered that I realized house music is fucking dope. And, and it just was like, hey, there's a whole world here. And that happened with like steampunk fashion and you know, mycelial stuff with mushrooms that I just, all these worlds of wonder. Um, there's a guy that publishes a book called To Live in Wonder, and he's spent his whole adult life interviewing regular people like me to people like Jerry Garcia and Ram Das about what it means to live in wonder, like the perpetual seeking of astonishment and, and, and sort of fulfillment at being humbled by uh, just the the, the raw beauty of life or, or the endorphins that fill you from riding a wave or glancing at your partner, all that stuff. You get that crystallized when you slow down and, and Burning Man and transformational festivals are really good at fostering those type of experiences because they're less ragey. They're less like, how fucked up can I get? And sure, there's a healthy amount of or unhealthy amount of imbibing but it's not predicated on the buzz or the rage. It's, it's, it's a journey. It's sort of rooted in the psychedelic concept of the acid test of the 60s, but it's, it's really current, techie, uh, electronic, very futuristic at the same time, but also primordial and human. And that, that's the type of stuff that you, you can't prepare for. I was wholly unprepared for it. It hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm still unpacking the downloads from the various Burning Mans I've been to, and also the relationships, the people you meet there, if they go to the effort, and I'm not talking about the plug-and-play billionaires, but the people that pack all their shit up in all these ing ingenious ways, pack it back out, spend a lot of time putting intention into these experiences, Burning Man or otherwise, they're fucking cool off the playa or outside of the festival. And sometimes projects arise or feasts or weddings, or all kinds of life events in communities that you would never have experienced. You would never go to these places or know people lived like this or celebrated like this or worked like this had you not gone to Burning Man or LIB or Envision. They just attract a, a seeker, somebody who lives in wonder. And, and that's why when I got to Burning Man, I was like, I found my people. And by my people, I meant all the people of the playa. 
it definitely is one of those festivals where I feel like a lot of people know about it, but unless you go, it's I can't imagine what it's actually like. So I'm glad you're kind of breaking it down for us. And I guess what I'd like to know about that experience, you know, is what is if you can even, you know, pull one out of the air that quick. Did do you have any sort of one moment that really stood out to you from your years of going to Burning Man, or any sort of experience in particular that you had there? Yeah, I think well, it was kind of like a bookend situation. Basically, my first year, I, I'm I'm all until I was in this incredible partnership with Alicia, uh, I did everything kind of solo, and Burning Man was no no uh, change to that. So. I liked it, even though I had a great crew there of friends that I knew from Swanee and such, I did a lot of exploring on my own that first year. And I found this golden dragon one morning in a very serendipitous fashion that won't go down the whole story, but basically for the uninitiated, they have these things called art cars, these giant art cars. They are buses or cars or golf carts or huge, enormous things on wheels and then they're they're built into whatever they could be a boat or a bumblebee or in this case there's a lot of dragons but there's only one golden dragon and her name's Abraxas and I knew nothing about um any of this stuff but certainly didn't know that Abraxas of the you know maybe 500-ish art cars on Playa had this history this legend Going back to like one of the earliest members of the Abraxas crew was John Perry Barlow, who was Bob Weir's songwriting partner for like all the classic Weir tunes. Perry Barlow, if you see uh, John Perry Barlow, if you look at the who wrote what in the Bob tunes, it's always like Weir Barlow. So that guy was a part of this Golden Dragon crew, Abraxas. And on my first burn, when I was out by myself one morning, I came upon this dragon. And there was no one really around except the folks that were on it. They were getting ready to board it. And I saw this woman dancing. I've always been a dancer, but I had this epiphany as I watched her dance. And I started to dance, and then we just followed this dragon around. And I was invited on, and I made friends with the folks on there. And there were all these great DJs playing, like Lapa Taylor and Random Rab. Tippers played. Andrelian back then he was Hayoka, uh, a number of you know the late Pumpkin, all kinds of DJs have played this dragon, and on this uh, morning it was this Cat Lafa Taylor, um, on that morning and then this woman named Aaliyah, and they both played really different types of electronic music. Lafa Taylor was like had lots of hip hop and R and B, super sexy vibes, and Aaliyah was like sort of really spiritualized bass music with like sort of yoga chants if you will like just really different unique and alluring electronic music and then the crew that danced around this dragon was just so ornately dressed like these amazing styles and moves and slow and i was again it was one of those like i found my people moments and i befriended them and the next year i went back to burning man and i found them again and I actually contributed to the GoFundMe ahead of time, and I found them, and I danced and celebrated with them. And when I got in trouble and I went to jail, uh, I had been in there for a while around the time it was Burning Man, about, you know, eight months or so. 
and I had this photograph of me and my then partner and still dear friend, Jill, who I was instrumental in getting me to Burning Man, a sunrise photo of us in front of this golden dragon on the playa. And a friend of mine had blown it up off the Facebook photo and color and mailed it to me in jail. It was at the foot of my bed. And people would ask me about it in jail. And I would say, it's like a Burning Man crew, golden dragon. Night. Oh, yeah. Function one system on the dragon, I must acknowledge. So it crunk. It bumps. And uh, I would tell stories of this to people in that I was incarcerated with, and they thought I was just on some wacky drugs. Like, I don't know what he's on, man, dancing at nightclubs with dragons in the desert. Like, I want, you know, it was like a running joke. Um, so the week of Burning Man, I was kind of like sad in jail and uh, talked about it a little bit. And on the Monday after Burning Man, I woke up, there was a, there was a newspaper cutout of, it was like a photograph of Burning Man that was on, I think it was like a Wall Street Journal that someone got in jail and maybe the Sacramento Bee, probably the Sacramento Bee. I can't actually recall the paper, but I have the cutout or had it because the newspaper of all the art cars that uh, they could have taken a photograph of, and there are some epic ones and visually far more epic than our dear Abraxas, but she's just uniquely special and has a lot of history. And for whatever reason, this newspaper photographer took a picture of Abraxas in her sunrise glory, which is where she really shines at dawn, where the DJs play the best sets, the sunrise sets on Abraxas. But for me to be as so lonely and just sad from being in jail and missing everything, Miss Fare Thee Well, missed the first D'Angelo tour in 15 years. And of course, my father passed away when I was in there. By the time we got to Burning Man, I was just really deflated. But then the newspaper and the dragon that everyone thought that I was telling silly stories about was a real thing. It wasn't a picture that was on the foot of my bed. Um, it was on the newspaper. And it was just this life-affirming jolt of energy. It felt like it just validated my belief in something bigger than what I was really living in jail or out, these relationships, these conversations, this sort of cosmic way I found Abraxas and the people of Abraxas, the burners that bring her out to the desert every year. It just was like, and I was almost home. I was two months away. It literally gave me the gas to get the rest of the way. And to bring this full circle, um, I was invited to a wedding uh, last year of a couple half of which was that same woman who I saw dancing that very first morning of the breakfast at my first burn. Her name is Rachel. She is a fucking empress. And her husband, Gerasimos, are getting married out in Ganja country in Mendocino County. And they were kind enough to think of me, of me. They've been to Burning Man like 19 times, no lie. And the dragon is a dozen years old. And of all the people they've encountered all those years, they invited me to their wedding and my partner, and it was like a burner wedding. They built everything, incredible cooking, incredible activities, the best fashion, the most like beautiful ceremony. And during that um, weekend, they invited us to camp with them, to ride Abraxas, to be a part of the Abraxas crew. 
And so for this Burning Man, which was the first one that Alicia had been to since the first that I'd been to. So she hadn't been since 2013. I'd been a couple of times in the interim, but we'd never been together. So not only were we going to get to go to Burning Man, but we got to camp with and roll with Abraxas. And who knows, Burning Man could be over, like with all the craziness that's going on in the world now, and especially their financial position and their the lawsuit with the Bureau of Land Management. There's a lot of red tape with Burning Man, and I'd be, I don't have a great feeling about it moving forward, but I am like content in the fact that there was just like a full narrative, a full journey where it started that morning with the dragon and we got to go do it proper this year. We even did the, you might've seen this in the news, but like the tool record release party for the new tool album at Burning Man, they play Alex Gray himself played that tool album on our art car. And it was in like all the news billboard consequence of sound, like, and that was our car. And like thousands of people followed the dragon out into deep playa. And we all heard Tool, not like electronic music or even like crazy bass music, but fucking Tool at sunset on the playa on the dragon. And it was just kind of like, pinch me, this can't be life. So of all, I've had a lot of magical experiences on the playa, but if I'm, you ask me for one, it is my journey with the mighty Abraxas dragon. Damn, I love those moments of synchronicity that you had just with the imagery when you were, you know, finishing up your time uh, being incarcerated. Because um, I think, for, I mean, I've never been to Burning Man, but uh, from what I've heard, because of course in San Francisco, you hear about it all the time. It's like the whole fucking city clears out. I'm like the only person at my job that has not been to Burning Man. But um, I think synchronicity is a, a pretty big theme that I hear about regularly. And I've, of course I've experienced it at other festivals, but I love that it really is such a threat in your life it is the threat like not burning man but festival culture has really been one of the threads you know from jazz fest to burning man to swanee it's really connecting the dots of my long strange trip yeah and it's a you know it's a thread that i imagine has changed a lot and one thing i wanted to ask you is that you know, in all these stories you've shared, it's clear that you've been to festivals all over the country at every corner. I mean, you've been to international festivals too with Envision and you've been going to festivals since the nineties. I think you said you were at the first uh, Bonnaroo. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the infusion of electronic music into the scene, because now, like when I was exposed to this culture, these festivals were already super hybrid in the sense that like on any given lineup, you see a bunch of jam, you see a bunch of electronic music. I'm thinking of like a Camp Bisco. I'm thinking of like, you know, Huluween is super, super hybrid now. So I wonder if you could talk about what that looked like at first and how it affected the culture and just your general experience. Yeah, you know, um, it's hard to pinpoint when the you know, proverbial tipping point was for that. Um, there was like DJs back in the day, like, so like Z Trip or Amon Tobin would play the early Bonnaroo's or Adirondack Mountain Music Festival, which is where I first saw Lettuce, like both Z Trip and Amon Tobin had fucking epic sets there. Those were pivotal electronic music sets when we come to think of it. And, and they both also played that Bonnaroo in 02. I mean, my festival going goes back to fish. I went to like the Lemon Wheel and the Great Went. I didn't go to Clifford Ball the first one, but Lemon Wheel, Great Went, Oswego, and of course, the granddaddy of them all, Big Cypress in Florida. And then basically, I don't, you know, 
I haven't been to a fish fest. Yeah, I take it back. I went to it in 2003 and Coventry in 04, and then I haven't been to a fish fest since 04. But they kind of set the blueprint, and Bonnaroo also, in some ways. And and so the 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 culture was not really like geared towards electronic music. And and like I mentioned before, Soundtribe really channeled the LTJ Bookum Good Looking Records drum and bass thing. And they were seen as like outliers. You know, I remember when my friend first told me about them, you're not going to believe this. And now, you know, the Jamtronica thing is like three generations deep. So really, um, where would I, I'd have to say, I'm, not, I'm a Philly guy. I'm not a Biscuits fan, but I love those guys. Really love Brownie and Magner, like as friends, they're great dudes. And I've kind of had to put my foot in my mouth because I always talked a lot of shit when I was younger and bullheaded, like we were talking about my band is better than your band shit. I was like vehemently anti-biscuits, but I have to acknowledge they really were early on the curve, whether it was Camp Bisco or just who they were putting on to open their shows. I'd say alongside with the Sound Tribe who actually played music that was very electronic, the Biscuits were like a fish band jammy with unts, but they would put on, you know, all kinds of, of, of electronic artists on their events. And then Sound Tribe kind of one-upped them and started doing like Prefuse 73 and stuff. But I think that was really the, the, the tipping point was when those Jamtronica bands from the first generation, um, and there were other ones, you know, but those, you know, like Lake Trout was one that they eventually moved away from Jamtronica, but they were an early purveyor of it. The, the original New Deal, all these bands that were inspired by electronic music, you know, like Biscuits were really into progressive trance. Soundtribe was really into jungle. Lake Trout was really into jungle. And, and that, that sort of like kicked the door down. And then people are want to know what inspired that. So they started putting on different artists, different electronic producers and such. And I think eventually that became normalized and, and beginning with like a, a Rothbury or really the early electric forests, you saw um, a lot of the crossover with electronic, but it was, it wasn't really, and I don't want to speak negatively of anything. It was just wasn't authentic in so much as it was just like, grabbing who was hot but it wasn't like a vibe it was just whatever's popular and i think that that's sort of the blueprint for most of these like mega fests that do the the crossover thing you know halloween is an exception i think that's really expertly curated uh, not just because i'm close to it but just because i know what the type of things they value and how they harness the vision for their lineup um that said on the west coast it's different on the West Coast, the jam band is the exception. So, like, you'll have an LIB, and, like, you got to go to the Grand Artique to get to hear, like, Orgone or Moon Hooch. And, like, even still, you'll never get, like, a wanky guitar solo jam band out at these fests. Yeah, it's more like part. folk music Yeah, rather than jam. Folk That's music. what I've noticed. Yeah, folky stuff, real earthy stuff, and also, uh, I guess, more of, like, uh, art rock and and sort of different 
the the live music will be folky and earthy, but they'll also have like some really unique, like avant-garde things. But not a lot of jammy. Although, Symbiosis was one that you know they they had a number of the bands and Global Eclipse in Oregon, which was incredible. Uh, that was like the best of both worlds. Just about everybody from all the scenes, including the Burner West Coast scene, plus the EDM set and a number of big jam bands and such. And that was really cool, but that, that couldn't be sustainable. That was like a once in a lifetime experience. So I don't, I don't really, I don't really love the, the mishmash together. We're going to just do all the popular stuff on one. I like a really curated lineup that's maybe less busy and more intentional. And I, you know, it's all in the ears of the beholder. So just because I think it doesn't make it so, but I find that more so on the West Coast, more so on LIB, Enchanted Forest, or on the jam side of things, High Sierra is like the greatest jam band festival ever, every year. It doesn't reinvent the wheel. They do what they do. The family affair, there's like the, the ghosts of the psychedelic revolution lurking in Northern California, but all the sort of traditional acoustic type bands, folky bands, a lot of jazz fest in the vaudeville tent and, you know, a pretty steady, reliable headliner rotation of lettuce and Denson and Chris Robinson and years ago, leftover salmon cheese, which isn't my thing, but they draw a great crowd. So I feel like high Sierra also on the West coast has really nailed the, the jam thing. And then Halloween, what I would say was like the exception where they do both. And they nail it, both sides of the coin. Yeah, I think Huluween does a really good job of filling that middle void, too, of kind of everything that isn't jam nor EDM. You know, I know that one of the, I think last year, maybe it was two years ago, they had Anderson Pack up there as one of the big headliners. And I know you're a really big fan of him. And I was really stoked just to see, just because I feel like you don't get a lot of acts like that nowadays. So I think they do a really good job of just getting all sorts of stuff mixed into there. Yeah, they they are great at that. And uh, they had, obviously, Jamiroquai, where they only played five U.S. dates. They hadn't been here in 13 years. They're one of my favorite bands of all time. I've done a bunch of projects and writing and stuff about them. And Hula got them. Uh, they're actually their last U.S. show, maybe ever. Who knows? But they hadn't been here in 13 years. So that was a huge get. Uh, you mentioned Anderson Pack. I found Anderson Pack at Hula, but not the year you're talking about, which was 2019, but 2016. Uh, I was unaware. Like I had been in jail the year before when he kind of blew up. Malibu had just come out. Everyone seemed to know. And wherever I went around Hula, and this was the second year I'd been, 2015 was the year I just had gotten released from jail and, and showed up a couple weeks later at Hula. That was 2015. So 2016, I knew who Anderson Pack was, but I wasn't like into him. And I sure as shit didn't have it like X marks the spot on my hula schedule. But everywhere I went those first two days, cats were like, I'll see you at Anderson Pack. You're doing Anderson Pack, right? Like I remember my boy Jeff Matheson, who I hadn't seen in forever, was so pumped that he had found me so we could see Anderson Pack together. And I'm like, all right, I got to go to this shit. And even still, it was like a, it was, it was like a fucking Mack truck, that performance at the amphitheater. Um, 
like I said, Malibu is just out. I wrote about it. It was top five. I've been to Swanee like 20-ish times for different events. Top five set all time, any band. He was dressed as like the Black Axel Rose. Came out to Welcome to the Jungle. You know, it's Halloween, so everyone's got a shtick. And then he just went right uh, into Come Down. You know, that's exactly what N-word came for. And it was like the whole amphitheater exploded. And the next 90 minutes were just this blur. And uh, yeah, that was my, that was my, you know, Anderson Pack moment. So I came back to the Bay and uh, my partner, Alicia, now fiance, who I proposed to at Swanee during Jamiroquai and who I met at Bear Creek, like 2011. Uh, I came back to California on the heels of that hula, wrote that article Went on Google, what do you know? Anderson Pack and the Free Nationals, New Year's Eve, 1015 Folsom. So you live in San Fran. You're probably familiar with that venue. Small. You know, it's Somehow honestly Matt, like, it's, it's honestly like my least favorite venue in San Francisco. It feels so clubby like, to me because yeah. it's, it feels big. The rest of the venues I usually go to, because I go see a lot of house music in San Francisco. They're all small. They're all intimate. But like 1015 is just like super clubby to me. It's, but yeah, I, I've never had a bad time there, but like. It's I can I can see Anderson Pack doing well there. It, it, he well he packed it out and I got no pun intended. It was uh, the venue was not the star of that show and actually the talent fire was not pleased that I said so in the article. But that's not the story. The story is I came back from the hula, saw he was playing ten fifteen, tried to rally my troops who are used to like fish on New Year's or Sea of Dreams or all this extravagant stuff. Anderson Pack was that. I just saw him at Hooli. He's incredible. At the end of the day, with the $125 ticket and no rep yet, only one person trusted my judgment like that to just go. And that was Alicia, who I'd been, like mentioned, I'd been friends with her from Hula or Bear Creek years ago. She lived out here in California for years before I got here. So we just went on some platonic homie shit to the Anderson Pack show at 1015. And uh, yeah, we came out together and now we're getting married. So from that Anderson Pack show at Hula, that was the Mack truck, you know, here Alicia and I are. And so we've gone to Red Rocks to see him. We saw him when he came back here. He played the uh, Masonic Temple. I actually met him that, that for a sec that night. We saw him do the late night jam with Deitch and Zoid and JD and Domi and the Free Nationals all at Cervantes after the Red Rock show the night before Lettuce played. So yeah, we're big Anderson Pack fans in this house. And he's just, he was another pivotal, pivotal moment. Like had I not had that holy shit experience that Hula with him as the Black Axel Rose, I would have never been so gung-ho to go to the show on New Year's Eve. The date would have never happened. And who knows if Alicia and I would have ever figured it the fuck out. So thanks, Andy. God bless Anderson Pack. His set will definitely make you fall in love. Yep. Now, a personal question, mostly, it's kind of like a an inside joke I have with one of Elizabeth's buddies and I's Matt, who they all went to LIB together this one year, and I remember they told me that, you know, they were gung-ho on seeing Tipper, but Pack was playing at the same time, and I, I was like, yo, Matt, you yeah. have to see Pack, yeah. Like, you have to. So I know that you're also pretty big into Tipper, so I'm just wondering, if you were in the shoes of Ethan, Elizabeth, and Matt at LIB, where would you go? 
I think I like I'm internet friends with Ethan and we've talked a little house music or something or other PRC I think I know that guy but, yeah that sounds right that's my fiance <laughs> oh okay yeah we maybe met for a second at a show he mentioned Once. that because I was trying to figure out if we had met because I was like oh my god we've lived in San Francisco for three fucking years like how have we not crossed paths with this person if we have yeah. mutual music taste because because the, the music scene is like fairly intimate here especially with like this kind of like niche shows and he thinks that we met at the break science show last year at mezzanine before it closed did you go to that yeah i did and he did come up and introduce himself yeah that's cool i don't i don't know where Um, i was i don't i don't think i i don't know if i met you i met the other like six plf that are in the the bay area that that night i think but um great show with matter yeah it was nice to have them back for sure. They yeah, I know. I, yeah, I was I was thinking that because I don't think I mean, I know Menard lives out here. So he'll he opens and, you know, every now and then. But break science, I don't think they had been out here. I mean, I don't know if Born had been, been out here several since, years. Yeah. Since like maybe when he was touring with Pretty Lights. And I know Deitch comes out every now and then with Lettuce. They had played at the jazz club earlier that year, which is fucking awesome. Did you go to that? Oh, yeah, I did all four nights and did a huge article about it. It was amazing. Yeah. Hell, yeah. It was that was... Jazz. The Pretty Lights Analog Future Band played Bill Graham in November 2013. It was pay-per-view. You can watch it on YouTube still. Yeah. Oh, and I've watched it a million night... times. It's a classic <laughs> show. So late, I do. Late night that night, Break Science did an after party, and that shit was bananas. Derek was in the mix playing some bass. It was pretty sweet. But they played one more time after that, I think around 2016, when they released... Uh, they didn't even release an album. They just came through. They yeah, they a did a whole California right tour. I think they played in like San Jose but, or something. I didn't. I wasn't living out here yet, but yeah. So to answer your question, that was a, a that was a huge deal. The LIB scheduling of Pac versus Tipper, and yes, the, it was a discussion that we had all weekend. We came to the conclusion, and I uh, never got an official answer because I don't really know the higher ups that high at the stage booking level. I, a few, but not enough where I could be like, what the fuck? But the idea was that they're both so huge that if you put one on without the other, then this, none of the stages could, the size could handle the volume of people. So by putting them against each other, they split the difference. Um, that was the thinking. Now I had, I'd seen Pac, uh, a few times already. And, uh, Again, like I'd had those two really epic experiences, Hula and the New Year's show. So as much as I've loved just about every Pac show I've saw, it, those two are just like apex mountain, as Bill Simmons would say. So I was like, as much as I love Pac and Maurice Brown on trumpet and the whole shit, that big stage at LIV, it wasn't that intimate. It didn't have, for that show, it was much more of like the Saturday night special. People were like, it was like a drinking vibe, a partying vibe, and really crowded. On the other hand, Tipper, I thought it was going to be like next level, right? He played a pretty subdued set. When we got there, people were not like engrossed. It was yeah, like, dude. A, I feel the exact it was like same a way. Really sort of sleepy, ketamineized. Like it was like tip, it was interesting and we enjoyed it, but like I've had some really like you know next level clean out the inner sanctums of your cranium tipper experiences, and this just wasn't one of them. Yeah, so I completely I, I felt, agree. You know, dare I say, let down a little bit by both. Hmm. Yeah, that's fair. Absolutely, I thought it was super underwhelming, and I was just like, God damn it, I fucked up. I didn't go see Anderson Pack. I still haven't seen him. 
Um, but, Ooh. and it kind of, it almost, it's not like it turned me off to Tipper, but like, I just wasn't as inclined to see Tipper after that. Cause I was just so not impressed. And again, I know, you know, the differences between like the festival sets and like the curated events, of course, but. I was going to say, he does good festival sets too. That one was just, uh, the, the, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that was a oddball, I would say. Yeah, completely agree. Interesting that you, that you feel it the same way. I, most of the people, most people that I've asked about that set have a, have a similar experience, but you know, can't win them all. And here's the, the, the here's, it was a, part of it was the audience. Um, so it's not nearly as, as dark or bad or uh, annoying as Bass Nectar, but there is a young, loud, inconsiderate sect of the Tipper fan base that makes the experience, whether they're like roasting DMT two inches away or screaming or just being wooks. Uh, there's, remember I was telling you about like that dude at my first dead show who just showed me the ropes of just how to carry it. Yeah. I, I was thinking like that tons yeah. <laughs> of people in the, in the current paradigm don't didn't have that formative instruction, how to comport themselves at a concert. So as to enjoy the fuck out of themselves and not infringe on others. You can, I am living proof. We can't, it can be done. And I'm six, two with long arms and I dance like a fucking maniac, but you won't hear people, at least not my experience. No one's ever beefed with me for like getting in their shit or encroaching on their ability to enjoy themselves. I'm always trying to make sure that everyone around me is, has the same ability to enjoy. And I don't, and I'm not tuning my own horn. A, a lot of people can carry themselves that way. But in, in the case of Tipper and, of course, Bass Nectar, and then, you know, to be real, in some situations, Pretty Lights fans do, there's just this uh, recklessness and lack of self-awareness. And when, you, when that includes, like, mind-numbing substances like ketamine or things like DMT or lots of acid, and then, of course, the, the psychedelic nature of the music, especially tipper it makes people like lose their shit and if they're not like in tune with how to carry it it can make for a shitty situation for folks around them so i saw a few incidents and lib on a saturday night it's just like it's all the weekend warriors and all the fucking people were just like coming in shot out of a cannon so it was it was almost like par for the course but yeah in general like even at at and, and Tipper, Tipper ironically played directly before Jamiroquai. So I went from that vibe to that vibe. And there was some wookery during Tipper Hula, but it was the exception, not the rule. And he loves Swanee. I mean, he has his Tipper and Friends Festival there otherwise. But for Hula, he was playing the amphitheater at full blast um, on a Saturday night as well. And it was it was light years better. And granted the environment was different and I felt like I was at home, but it's all when you catch them, you know, there were two festival sets and they were, it couldn't have been more different. And then he played here 2018 into 2019. Uh, he played on like the morning of January 1st. Yeah. Like a three day event. Yeah. So I, we I... just went for that. Yeah. We just went for that, that night. We didn't go the first night, but we went for that night. Saw two fingers and and Tipper. Yeah. Did, so you were there for that sunrise set then, right? Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. actually left the event, came back for that. Yeah, we were we were at that too. We went we went all three nights. It was incredible. It actually completely 
restored my opinion of Tipper. I just, you know, I love honestly when electronic artists, you know, have their different sets, whether it's up tempo, down tempo, ambient, twilight, you know, whatever he does. But I thought it was hilarious that the whole fucking pavilion was covered in air mattresses, and of course, it reeked of yep. DMT. But you could, you literally couldn't walk anywhere because there were air mattresses everywhere, and you had to get it set up early. It was one of the most wild experiences of my life. Love that venue. Yeah, we actually stayed sober. Uh, I mean, we smoked some trees, but we didn't get spun or do any drinking because we were like driving back out there for the tipper set. And uh, in general, it was just like, well, we're gonna do this one, you know, sober for whatever reason. And uh, so it was just interesting to go into that energy in that world with like a clear head at dawn like you know we're not dirty or like sweaty or any of the stuff you would think of like all-nighter and it was just like a whole new world and i i love the tipper down tempo like when i went to my first envision he was the headliner and he did a a heavy set and a like up tempo set or whatever and the down tempo set and i loved the down tempo set and then i went to sonic bloom that same year and he was headlining and he did the two sets and i loved the heavier set better and he's been someone i've just sort of slowly waded into i'm not like a tipper encyclopedia but i do love tipper and bring it full circle tipper opened that analog future show at bill grant it was tipper and then pretty late analog future band like oh holy shit <laughs> and that wow, was i like, didn't realize you know, that well i didn't know that either that's fucking nuts yeah and he also opened the gorge when we went to the the like pretty lights live band yeah out. yeah i was there for that yeah and it's interesting to see because, like, uh, Derek obviously holds Dave in really high regard, you know, because he puts him in these special opportunities. And I mean, I think Tipper could probably give a shit either way, but uh, he is clearly grateful and makes tons of new fans every time he plays for a pretty light audience. Yeah. Um, so going back to New Year's in the Bay, I have to say that New Year's out here is super underrated. There's always so much going on. I've done New Year's out here the last two years and it's been so hard to pick and choose like what you want to do. And it's like these like crazy fucking five night runs where there's just shit going on from like the 27th to the 31st. And I imagine this past year you probably did lettuce, right? I did. Yeah. I mean, I can't not do lettuce. That's my religion. The whole week was funky though. Like I usually like to mix it up with some electronic music. And I think we did on one night, but it escapes me right now. On one of the nights we did go out dancing. Uh, but it was one night it was Dumpster Funk with the Tower of Power Horns. One night it was, or two nights it was Carl D and the Motet at the Fillmore. Uh, the Dumpster Tower Power thing was at Great American. And then we had the Master Sounds playing at, uh, what was it called? I'm forgetting the name of the venue right now, the, the Chapel. So it was just, just on the funk side of things, like basically the, the, top tier in the sort of jam funk scene just lined up for the week here and so that's how when i'm really fortunate not only do i love these bands but i can get paid to go to the shows and tell about my experiences so it's it's like you don't really work a day when you love what you do that's some shit my dad would say i'm sure everybody's parents told him that um and like that's true in this instance because i would go to these shows uh every night of the week instead it's like going to work and as long as i don't get bent and can like talk about what the hell happened it's all good and that's really what i'm working towards 
one other thing I just want to nerd out about for a second, because I just fucking love the Bay Area so much. I want to know uh, where you live in the East Bay and like what some of your favorite venues are to see live music at out here. Uh, I live near Lake Merritt, kind of by the Grand Lake Theater on like the edge of where Piedmont meets Oakland. Uh, I love it. I miss Grass Valley and the great outdoors, but I, I do love the Bay and I pray that uh, we come back because my partner, she worked at this amazing restaurant called State Bird Provisions uh, near the Fillmore for five years. Uh, it's one of the best restaurants in the country. You Google it, you know, like 5,000 Yelp reviews. And she, you know, she's a holistic nutritionist. And she worked there because she loved it and loved the restaurant culture and the interactions and networking that she could do for her passions through the interactions she had there. And, and that's why she's here. And I'm here. Of course, for her, she lived here already, and I moved from those ganja farms down here for partnership. But I also moved here to put my thumb on the pulse of the Bay Area music scene because I grew up reading about the Grateful Dead and hate Ashbury. And I kind of, all the way back then, was like, one day I'm going to set up shop where it all began for the GB. And when I finally got here, I've been here for a couple of years, and now who knows? And I don't want to be doomsday, but it's like, even if we come back, who knows how we're really going to come back for a while. And it's daunting because I don't know what's here for me without the music culture. And I don't know what's here for her without the restaurant culture. So I hope that we're here for the long haul, but I really have no idea. And I sincerely hope that the music venues are able to persevere um, in one way or another. I spent a great deal of time at the Boom Boom Room just because they have a lot of the artists in the funk and jazz scene that I love and they do these late night jams after shows elsewhere. Uh, I love the Fox Theater here in Oakland. I also love the New Parish here in Oakland. Um, I love like little shit reggae club in Berkeley called Ashkenaz. There's, you know, it's like, it's a hole in the wall, but this, the, the history and energy in there and the, as far as, you know, it's, it's nothing to speak of if you just walk in. There's also a place called the Ivy Room in Albany, just outside of Oakland here on the East Bay side where, you know, I saw Ghost Note destroy for two nights before, like, the world found out that they were the shit. And they have, like, they're owned by two females who have been, like, fixtures of the, of the music community, like, working at the Fox Theater and then opening, taking over the Ivy Bar. So, like, Ivy Room, I should say, the Ivy Room. Those are some of my, like, off the top of my head favorites. And then, I, you know, it's hard to find cool places to dance vibe-wise. I'd be interested to hear from you, Elizabeth, where you like to dance. Like, I go to Halcyon, and it's cool, but it's too much of, like, a fucking too cool for school, like, a bottle service vibe sometimes there. And then you go to, like, the Midway, where I saw the most amazing Cooter and Dorfmeister 20th anniversary concert. They're, like, the first DJs that I ever worshipped. Uh, K and D sessions, Kruder and Dorfmeister, and they played their 20th or 25th anniversary show at uh, the Midway, and it was like the most incredible music. But this cavernous cafeteria of a venue, so it wasn't really conducive to the the vibe. So I'm I do struggle with really finding like uh, amazing dance music rooms, though I have had some fun at Mezzanine, and of course. Yeah, I feel that. Um, I I really like the Great Northern, and yeah, I, Great Northern is dope. 
You're right. It's probably my favorite venue. And, you know, I like how intimate Halcyon is, but I see what you're saying about the bottle service. I love their couches. Um, you know, I, I think I've only ever been there to see Mark Farina. And I, I don't know if you're a fan of Mark Farina. I went Mark to that. Well, he's played. Oh, yeah? I'm sure. Yeah, I've seen him there for sure. Yeah, so I, I kind of love Mark this- Farina. Yeah, I, I realized that I fell into this habit out here because I, Mark Farina used to be uh, a resident uh, in San Francisco in the 90s, I think. And I think that's where he birthed like the mushroom jazz genre. Yep. And so he he comes out here like every other month. So I realized I was in this pattern of like I was only going out to see Mark Farina because it kind of filled, you know, I was like, all right, you know, every six weeks I'm going out and partying and, I'm, you know, I'm kind of lazy. I live out in the sunset where it's like super foggy. So, I, you know, I got kind of lazy but um mark plays at public works a lot and i kind of had a bone to pick with them once because i you know this obviously isn't their fault but i experienced just like such an uncomfortable amount of sexual harassment like unlike anything i've ever experienced and it was kind of a challenge to navigate that with them His, mark's assistant was really helpful about it though and now they've done a lot to kind of to resolve that. And we, <laughs> I feel so guilty admitting this. I, this was such a struggle for my new year's plans, but we had to decide between lettuce and Mark Farina. And I think Ethan and I are kind of religious about Mark Farina, the way that you are about lettuce. So we, we obviously chose Mark Farina. I mean, we're the type of fans that when he says it's an all night set, we show up at 9am and we're like the first five people in the door. And uh, we just, we just love him. We love that he comes out here. It's honestly my favorite part about living out here. We we thought about trying to hustle over to that afterwards because lettuce was done by like twelve forty five. But yeah, the posse and it was New Year's and there was champagne toasts and we just were like, why are we going to force it? Uh, so we didn't. But yeah, I, would, I imagine Mark Farina would be great on New Year's. I saw him play on a shit a shitload of times even before I lived in California. But when I lived in Nevada City or Grass Valley, he would play this little hole in the wall like basement club called the Haven Underground, which was like low ceilings, function ones. And he would just, oh man, had some of the most liberating like house music, funky house sessions. Because it's a, it's a burner town, it's a dance music community. And, and Mark is kind of off the beaten path. He's not on that like super spiritualized burner vibe. He just, he just drops it funky. And, and that was just like a wake up call for these like, you know, Om Shanti burner types just kind of losing their their sort of sexual selves to the music instead of being on this spiritual vibe. And that was a really great show uh, for him. And then you see him in San Francisco and it's much more like, uh, I guess people know what to expect. And it's more of like a less dancing, more play the wall, look cool. And that's kind of, I guess, my issue with San Francisco and not San Francisco specifically, but Bay area is that I haven't, other than like random house parties that I've been invited to, uh, after hours stuff. I haven't found my like room to dance here. Um, and I hope that I can when they open up again and maybe you can, you can hit me to what's happening and where I need to be going dancing. Hell yeah. I'd love to, I'd love to link up with you someday. Uh, once, once live music returns. Um, and you know, I also kind of wanted to circle back to like the very beginning of our conversation when you were talking about, uh, you know, your interest in classical music and your exposure to that growing up, because I'm actually, I feel so, so lucky and so grateful, but I, I work for the San Francisco Symphony. So I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever been, but you know, one day when live music comes back, I would love to bring you and Alicia someday if you're ever interested. Yeah, we would love that. Yeah. I haven't been to the symphony at all in many, many, many years, but, uh, you know, I would be honored. I'd love to check it out. It feels like a classy thing to do. Yeah. And, you know, it's, 
I think the symphony is hoping to kind of remove that like perceived barrier that classical music is this kind of like elitist music and I I really don't know how to like break that barrier down but you know it, it you know it can be a classy thing but like I I hope that people don't perceive a barrier because they visualize it as a classy thing yeah, I mean, it was a flippant remark, and I didn't mean it in that regard. More just like most of the time when we go out, it's like we're just going out, but we want to look nice, and 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 it was just kind of like a special night out rather than classy, I should say. But that said, I think that it's cost prohibitive, uh, and it's also, hmm, it classical music is just not, uh, it's not. Well, in my experience growing up, it was we rejected it because it was like staid establishment boring and it's really none of those things but that's how it's perceived as this sort of old thing for old folks and my mom still you know she took me when I was a kid and she still goes season tickets with my dad when he was still with us and now she goes with her girlfriends or whatever and you know it's music that is hundreds of years old and I talk about like the storied t- traditions and narratives and Grateful Dead music. Well, you know, and classical music and all the different eras, you know, Bach, Rachmaninoff, Grieg, Tchaikovsky, all that stuff I played when I was a kid taking those piano lessons. Like there's just endless well of storytelling, emotion, history in those songs. And that's why people my mom's age in her late 70s are still paying somewhat exorbitant amounts of money to go hear these songs again. It's not unlike Fish and Dead fans. Going to show after show after show. Just want to hear a new version, hear a different reading, hear an updated take. How does the next generation interpret these songs, et cetera? So that said, yeah, we'd be stoked. And that's got to be a really awesome gig to work something and you get exposed to a lot of culture. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean... I, I think I feel a little insecure about this, but I, I'm one of the only people at my job that doesn't really have a classical background and that doesn't play an instrument. I might be the only one, but people are super open-minded there. Like I said, literally everyone has been to Burning Man. It's And it's I'm just so lucky that I get to be exposed to classical music this way and that I get to like learn about it this way. Um, That's but, so funny you say that about Burning Man and classical music. Like hilarious for me yeah. personally, because my mom you know, went from being so frightened of Burning Man to, you know, kind of talking about it, not like bragging, but just like, my son's been to Burning Man so many times. And so she, her, our family, we do all the Jewish holidays uh, back East whenever I can make it back there. And that's like their thing. And I'm happy to show up and, and enjoy like a Seder or whatever. But when we go to that, I'm always like a fish out of water because I'm the only one in my age group by like 30 years so the burning man thing was so shocking and you know they look around at the pictures and see the freaks and stuff and they're just like these older women and such from our family were aghast until okay one of them like tutors slash like mentors this prodigy violinist from she's from japan i believe but she's here on some sort of like educational visa or whatever. And she's like superstar. Uh, and she went and performed at Burning Man, this, you know, transfer student from another country with all this decorated classical music history and, uh, and achievements and such. So 
now this same woman who was aghast at uh, the, the, you know, extreme stuff from Burning Man wanted to know everything because it, the, the classical music performance there changed her whole perception of the place just because this young woman it was glowing, said it was one of the greatest experiences of her life. And she's played with like philharmonics all over the world. And so I stumbled upon a couple classical music uh, performances on the playa through the years. It's really beautiful, especially in the morning hours to hear that sort of serenity as the sun comes up over the desert. That's the magic of Burning Man right there. And I'm not surprised to hear the San Francisco Symphony is filled with burners. Yeah, um, I'm, I wonder if you might have come across uh, one of my former co-workers runs um, Art House. They put on the, they're like the burning, I, I'm sure there's more than one Burning Man orchestra, but they put on a performance every year. Um, the last one I think they did was uh, the Firebird and they, you know, they put on this incredible performance with, you know, ballet dancers and, you know, members of the symphony, like whether it's the staff or like the actual musicians are part of the orchestra and it's, it's super cool. I, I definitely, I definitely want to check it out someday. And maybe, you know, if I, if I ever do go, I think I would want to go with that camp and put on something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like that would be an incredible way to experience it. And I can't recommend Burning Man enough. Again, I recognize that the priorities is definitely not a priority in 2020. We've got work to do on so many levels. And I, I want to say, since we're still on the phone and if you guys include this, I feel self-conscious, uh, about talking about all this cool shit, right? I've been so fortunate, so blessed. Yes, I went to jail and got strung out on drugs, but big picture, I've been privileged, I've been fortunate, I've been afforded all these incredible opportunities because of who I was born to, how I was raised, all that stuff. If you, the rest of, and I know like Wes and I probably interacted online about something or other over the past few months, but uh, shit is fucked on so many levels. And while I'm, honored to be asked and i hope that our conversation provides people with uh, an, a welcome distraction or some positive energy and levity amidst all the negativity like i i can't uh, spend two hours talking about stuff without acknowledging that like there are such greater priorities for us as even as music fans and as in as citizens, and I'm not getting political, I'm just talking about human being shit, like all these musicians that we're talking about in Lebanon, like the ones that aren't mega successful with a nice nest egg, and that means most people, they're struggling. All the fucking uh, people that build the stages, the crew, and the different management, public relations, all that stuff. Yes, you're starting to see concerts pop up of various degrees of, of safety here and there, but for the most part, Music cats are out of work across the board, and most of them don't have the type of savings that can sustain them. So not only have I like lent my skills and time to a few fundraising efforts, like the poster we did for the Crew Nation and such, but I just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge that like we need to really step up and support the music community however we can. If that's donating or live streams, buying merch, going out and uh, doing whatever we can to just put energy, money, intention back into the communities, the festivals, like people get bent out of shape because of ticket refunds or, and I understand people are hurting for money too, but like nobody as much as music and maybe restaurant 
And I think that uh, I'd be remiss and I would be super bummed if I spent my whole interview just touting how fucking cool a life I had without acknowledging that like people are hurting and like, I'm, I'm there with them too. And just because I have a roof over my head and enough money for rent this month, uh, doesn't mean that I don't understand exactly where we are as a culture, as a communities. And, uh, I just want people to know, like, I, I feel them, I love them, I love y'all, and uh, I hope that we can get back to music, but I have, we have bigger fish to fry. Yeah, I'm really glad you bring that up, and, you know, it's me being in the same position where, you know, my whole life was music, it's been a very weird time adjusting, but I do want to say that, you know, for people listening, the easiest way is to get involved on the venue level, there's the group called NEVA, which is the National Independent Venue Association. Yep. And they are helping, you know, they're really pushing for small venues. And like, you know, Elizabeth talks about a lot of these venues, even in big cities like San Francisco, they're not corporate. They're the independent guys and they're the ones that need help. And then for bands, you know, now is a great time to buy merch. If you can, it's a great way to support the band. That money usually goes more directly to artists and ticket sales and other forms of revenue building. But it is just it's a it's a really scary and uncertain time, and I'm I'm very glad we are talking about it just because I do want everyone just to be doing what they can to kind of at least be aware of the issue enough to know that it's a situation that's pretty pretty in dire straits right now. Are you still with that venue out there? I mean, we're one of those venues that's kind of on the brink right now. You know, we're we're not able to do shows. Um, the legislation here in New York is constantly changing about what we can do indoors and not. And just today they announced that, you know, bars can't host bands, which is kind of our whole thing, you know, because we were trying to run as a restaurant and bar, but now we can't do that. So, you know, we're we made a deal with our landlord, so we have until April to not pay rent, but after that, you know, it's uh, we're in the same boat as a lot of other small venues. So I actually just picked up a gig working at Texas Roadhouse, just to like you know, I said something to pay the bills, keep the roof over my head, just waiting to yeah, keep putting it. in the work and you know get back to it. Yeah, I mean it's tough. I've I feel your pain, man, and I've got friends in the venue business on all sides of the coin. People have been instrumental in my life. I mentioned the Blockley. Uh, which was a now defunct club in uh, in Philadelphia. And the owner-operator there of the Ardmore Music Hall in Philly is one of my dear friends, Chris Perella. He gave me a shot again when I was at a low point using, and my dad was sick. So he's built this amazing situation out there at an Ardmore Music Hall outside of Philly over the past few years, and it's just come to this grinding halt. So... While I'm not familiar with your situation, I've kind of kept a keen eye on him and my buddy Michael Berg in Chicago, who does hula, but also does a bunch of uh, night shows out there in Chicago and different people in different aspects. Uh, ben Penagar from Gray Area in Pittsburgh, another dear friend who's a talent buyer and venue manager. And, and everyone's sort of had to scramble and find ways to keep some sort of revenue coming in, keep the staff afloat, furlough people. It's just, it's, it's harrowing. And to think that, you know, we might come back to a situation where it's all this corporate climate way worse than it was before. It was already a stranglehold by those big fish and it sucks. And I think that's going to be the case for re restaurants too. And I, I'm dreading that. And 
I'm, I know personally, I'm going to put whatever energy I can into keeping independent venues and, and music production situations afloat however I can lend my talents to their situations. But I also want to say that I think like trying to figure, and I'm not speaking on your situation directly, but trying to figure out ways and loopholes to make it work, compromising safety is just how we're going to keep spinning our wheels. Um, obviously, musicians haven't had a choice. They're not working. They're not touring. The venues aren't playing. But anytime people have been given an inch or a respite, if they're not outright denying the situation, then they're taking advantage of it. I see it here, even in the liberal parts of California, let alone the rural. Um, and there's a reason why the rest of the world is most of the way through this nightmare and we're still on the fucking hamster wheel. And I'm not getting political. This is just like, hey, if people could just do what they're told and get off this freedom shit and, and put empathy and compassion as the default setting instead of liberty and freedom, quotations, then maybe we would be able to start having music again. My man Nico in Greece is playing shows again, and they were getting destroyed in March. So it's doable, but I think that, and it's, again, it's not a commentary on your venue or the choices you're making in general. They're cutting the corners. They're trying to find the loopholes at the expense of safety. Is gonna It's going to be pushing us backwards instead of forwards. And I say that knowing that people don't, not everyone's getting a a re, uh, like a sort of a pause on their rental April and not everybody has the ability to just wait it out. So I, I, my, my heart aches for them too. There's no easy answer here and that's why we're here. And again, it brings us back to like a political thing. Why is our country not taken care of? It's people like that. You know, that's a conversation not for now, but at the end of the day, I'm really frustrated because I see Everyone from people like you and your situation, both of you, because you're both in the music industry and you need to seat rooms or fill rooms with people for musical entertainment and you're prohibited from doing that. And there's really no end in sight. And as much as I want to talk about how great the music culture and community is, I'm scared shitless and I'm legitimately concerned that like it's not going to be anything close to what we had. And that's a sobering thought. So I don't want to end on that thought. We got to finish with something positive. But I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that, like, the uncertainty is fucking harrowing. I appreciate you guys bringing that up. I think it's an important thing to acknowledge. And I was just going to ask you, Wes, uh, how, how can we support the Westcott Theater? I mean, the Westcott Theater, like a lot of venues, have a GoFundMe. You know, that's one thing we're doing. And, you know, like I mentioned about artist merch, we also have some merchandise. So... You know, wherever you're at, listen to this. If your local me- or music venue has a website and they have any form of merch, that's anything you can do. I know they're taking a lot of donations, so like we have that GoFundMe, like I said, on our website. There's a direct link to that, thewestcottheater.com. But I mean, that's really all I can do is just support and donate what you can if you can. But my question for you, B, is on a much different note. Are you listening to any new music lately? And if so, what is it? Hmm new music well i'm sure you know our boy adam deitz dropped a new album today so good yeah the age of imperfection so i've i've been playing that and i've just finished the story right before we got on the phone i finished this interview that i put together with him on that um you know i've been listening to well i went i've been going through a lot of phases so i i during jerry week every year i just go deep 
So I was on the lot of Garcia for a while. During early in COVID, I moved out of the Bay for a few months and lived on a ranch in Grass Valley during like the original phase one or whatever, when it got crazy for March, April, May. And out there, I was listening to a ton of old reggae, like dub and stuff. So I would say like of new music, there's a producer named Oak, O-A-K-K, all capitals. He's based out of British Columbia. Um, and he, so there's a, there's a small sect of producer DJs out of like Salt Spring Island and British Columbia that come from the Shambhala base coast world. I've, I encountered them at Burning Man, like Ataya, Goop Steppa is my favorite, Leland River. So the, they've been around for a while. They're not new, but this Oak Cat uh, is relatively new on my radar, like a year and a half, two years. But he's he's uh, has a refreshing take on bass music and halftime drum and bass, uh, super sexy, lots of R&B remixes. So as far as new cats, I really like Oak. Um, I'm also, I'm, new music-wise, the new Polyrhythmics album that came out, uh, Music of the, uh, of the Mind, the title escapes me, but it's the latest, Man of the Future is what it's called. Um, they're out of Seattle. They're not a new band, but they're kind of like a youngish band in the eyes of the culture, and they're a super funky throwback. Let Us Resonate, of course, which was, you know, a fantastic follow-up to Elevate. And um, I know I'm, like, missing shit. I've been listening to a lot of 90s hip-hop this summer, kind of taking it back to the golden era of Boom Bap. I think that came out of all these, like, verses, face-offs of these classic artists. Um, Black Thought released uh, a new single, and he had an album that was going to come out on July 31st, but then Malik B died, so he pushed it back. Um, but thought has some new shit coming. Um, what am I else am I forgetting? Oh, I've been listening to tons of early eighties funk. Uh, again, not new music, but something that I've really just, cause I was always a seventies guy, P funk, earth, wind and fire, mustache era, James Brown. Uh, and I, Nikki Glaspie from dump or from, uh, end power. And before that dumpster funk, a good friend of mine and somebody who I love dearly. And, also a big influence on me musically and she has a side band called nikki and the homies and it's just kind of whatever killers she can put together in whatever city she books the gig she flies some people in she collects some locals she does it in la and new orleans and new york etc and they do all that early 80s outrageous sexy funk like the gap band and cameo and brides of funkenstein rick james and so she puts up these playlists on YouTube for her band to like, here's what we're going to play in LA next week. So I saw, I saw her do this the first time in New Orleans at the legendary Maple Leaf on the second Sunday of Jazz Fest. So day 10, I was like asleep on my feet. Show started at midnight or one at the Maple Leaf. And it was insane. So good. She's like, yeah. I put the playlist up on YouTube. So I was like, okay, checked it out. What do you know? She has all these playlists for the bands to learn. And this is, we have all this time on our hands. I just go to those playlists and then I let the algorithms do their thing. And I have completely unearthed a, like just an endless well of 
early 80s funk, all these hip-hop samples that I'm digging up, you know, like, just amazing. So, unfortunately, I don't have a ton of new shit. I will give you Oak for the electronic music side and polyrhythmics on the funk side, but lots of old school shit. King Tubby, Black Uhuru on the reggae side, and Oswad. These are all like classic reggae artists, more modern era like Sizzla, Anthony B, Capleton, because reggae music has really been a huge thing for me during COVID, A, because I've been outside a lot, B, because hearing the Rasta man uh, neck deep in suffocation chants the glory of God. Like, like reggae music is gospel music. It is, it is melodies and harmonies that praise God. Uh, and so that primitive thing, that like intangible magic of, of faith in song is so deep in reggae because it's so simple musically but so much depth and history and faith and spirituality and so i've been just leaning into that pretty pretty heavily and it's it's been rewarding on a on a kind of like a profound level so i want to i want to shout out reggae and i revives and i actually been writing about cannabis and music and the sort of symbiotic relationship they have uh there's a new website that's about to drop real soon i didn't want to shamelessly self-promote but it's called herb and music and it's uh, one of the producers of the production managers of the festival world with fish and Halloween and bonnaroo it's his idea he's you know lived in jamaica and it's deep in the reggae culture and then irie mag which is a san francisco-based reggae online magazine that's global they asked me to step up and uh, contribute, be kind of one of the opening team of urban music. And I didn't know that when I went off the reggae deep end. It was just one of those serendipitous things that happened. And so now I'll be writing about cannabis and music. And I think that reggae kind of delivered me there. So that's what I'm playing right now. That's really exciting news to hear. Well, I'm glad you decided to shamelessly self-promote. I can't wait to check that out. It was really like cosmic to be asked, you know, it's like, hey, dude, you because you, I've been working on the ganja farms for a few years now. So I'm really in touch with the medicine from a from a agricultural and sort of back to the earth permacultural level. Just just getting making use and eliminating waste and all this sort of concepts going into modern cannabis farming and horticulture juxtaposed with the you know, the deep-rooted history of cannabis and music going back to Louis Armstrong and Dizzy Gillespie. And so, you know, having a purpose to dive into the history books and sort of regurgitate that for the next generation has been, a, you know, it's just started. It's a rewarding experience. We got Red Man in the first issue. We got My Historical Dive Part 1. We have a, a wellness column every month that my dear fiance contributed the first one too and it's going to we'll have a playlist it's going to be an evolution so we'll keep you posted uh urban music and of course the up for life i was going to get to that with the reggae thing this would be a good way to wrap it up 
So the Up for Life is obviously my podcast, but originally, and it's really just my brand. It's where I store all the work I've done for Jam Bass and Live for Life Music and Everfest and Fest 300 and whatever other oddball sites I might have written through the years. Upfullife.com, you can find all that. Obviously, the Upful Life podcast, but Upful is a patois, a Rasta, a Jamaican patois term. Uh, it really originated with like the reggae singer, DJ, big youth who had a, the Upful one. Um, and I was put on my radar because one of my childhood best friends, older brothers, a cat named Adam, or Judah Youth, as he called himself in those days, he got deep into reggae culture, you know, around 2000, 2001. And he was living in Shanghai, China, running a vinyl reggae shop and selling clothes. And he created this clothing line called Upful International. And he was telling me that Upful is just a way of way of living. And so I was like intrigued and I was wearing dreads at the time. And he was kind of schooling me on what that actually meant beyond like looking a certain way. And that, and Upful was kind of like a phase for him and he got married and had children and he's like got degrees on the wall and very successful professional kind of left it behind, but he bequeathed to me this wisdom and uh, a quest for knowledge and understanding knowledge of self. And, and I, it took me a while, you know, I struggled with drugs and all that stuff and had some twists and turns, but I always sort of had this Upful philosophy. Upful is really primitive. So the Rastaman gets up, gets high, either high, like not just smoking herb, but high on life, hiking outdoors, like eating ital, as they call it, or eating healthy or eating pure is a certain dietary way of life. Uh, full. So to be full, to fill yourself, whether it's with food and eating righteously or fill yourself with culture or understanding. So to be high and to be full, up full. And it just stuck with me. And eventually down the road, when I needed a place to put all my shit, uh, I was like, man, I just want to live an up full life. And it just kind of flowed out. And uh, so through reggae culture and, and the concepts of, of Rastafari, in a, not in a religious sense, but just in a way of life and a way of living in wonder and fulfillment uh, became the up full life. And then when it came time to have a podcast, after listening to tons of podcasts while trimming weed and working in the gardens and driving long distances and a thousand people telling me, you got to have your own podcast, tell me uh, what other name than the up for life. And, and it's aptly titled because the concept of my show is, is, is inspiration and overcoming adversity and music and festival and the cultures that surround. So, it's like our community, but the stories inside are not unlike the one I told today, which is just about what inspires and how did you overcome the mountains before you? And, you know, everybody has their own version of that. And, and that's what the Upful Life is all about. I love that, B. Thanks for, thanks for sharing the story behind the, the name behind your brand. And I think that's a beautiful way to like live and approach life. And I'm glad you found that. Yeah, me too. And I'm happy to like share it with others. And, and I, you know, I know that you guys are doing something here that's in line with that. And if I'm not mistaken, did you not recently, because you mentioned about sexual assault earlier, you hosted like a symposium or some kind of roundtable discussion on the topic recently, right? Elizabeth, oh, I think she might be frozen. 
But she teamed up with um, Stacy Forrester, who's a part of Good Night Out, which is an organization based up in Vancouver. And they held this really, really great seminar that a lot of people tuned into, just talking about the current state. And, uh, you know, it was very in part of due to the wake of Bass Nectar and all of that, so it was very relevant. And it was just incredible conversation. Hard, but necessary to be had. Yeah, that's important. And I, I was going to say, we're doing something similar but different on the Upful Life with, you know, uh, racism and systemic and institutionalized racism and how, like, you know, Black culture has informed Black music. Yet, you know, the Upful Life and the jam scene is very white. And uh, how can we open this conversation to confront these things and, and sort of talk it out uncomfortably and and all the sort of warts and all, as my uh, mom would say, you know, and it's been really rewarding. I've had a number of people of color on lately and have some more in the queue and has just been interacting with each, each of them and, and, and learning and listening and allowing them to tell their stories, not on our terms, but on their own. And it's, it's been difficult because it's forced me to confront some like microaggressions and deeply rooted things that, you know, I never considered myself prejudiced, but it's uh, been brought to my attention that I may harbor them anyway. And like being able to talk about them in an open forum with people of color that I respect and adore their music and, and who they are. It's been really informative and I've gotten a lot of great feedback on the show. So I appreciate when people, such as yourselves, or in this case, uh, Elizabeth and Stacy, or whatever, like having those hard conversation type shows, type podcasts, type dialogues, because we can sing the praises and like talk about how fun shit is all the time. But the hard conversations are the productive ones. And, the, and they're the ones that we take home with us, that we revisit in our minds over and over again. So a salute anyone that's willing to take the hard route for righteous. But yeah, I feel you, man. That was a whole other topic that, you know, I thought we could talk about just with Jazz Fest, just because, you know, that's a festival that's entirely rooted out of black culture, you know, and it's such a prevalent thing down there. And that's what I hear about New Orleans in general, is that it's just this very tangible culture that just really spread everywhere. You know, like everybody from all over the map can go to Jazz Fest and have themselves a fantastic time. It's true. I mean, but you know, it's a good thing for the most part. It's a beautiful thing. So I want to start with the positives, which is that it's enlightened me to culture, history, all kinds of, of you know, just the building blocks musically and, and culturally, artistically. And, and the, the story of New Orleans is a remarkable and resilient one. And I mean, I've never stuck with anything in my life as much as I stuck with Jazz Fest. You know, no schooling, no job, no relationship other than my folks, you know, uh, has lasted as long as mine with Jazz Fest and by proxy New Orleans. I've been to Mardi Gras, the carnival, been there for fish, been there for weddings or just passing through. Oh, you're back. But just to answer your question briefly, uh, Wes, with regard to New Orleans, is that uh, it's also just a, a ton of systematic racism, oppression, of opportunism, of gentrification. Uh, and, you know, as I get older and I have a firmer grasp on how that stuff evolves as I see it in real time, as opposed to hearing about it or reading about it, 
it's demoralizing and depressing and my heart aches for the, the folks in New Orleans because, you know, they already were like decimated by the Katrina debacle and the aftermath and the gentrification and opportunism and the basically erasing of neighborhoods and cultures. And I fear that may happen again. A lot, of, I say a lot, more than one hand of friends I can reel off right now have left New Orleans in the COVID era some temporarily, others permanently. So I I worry about that. But as far as the sort of like uh, the black contribution, I mean, a New Orleans trumpet player named Nicholas Payton is adamant and referring to jazz music exclusively as black American music. And I know this because Benny Bloom told me about it and why. So I've tried to make a mental note whenever I can to use black American music in lieu of the word jazz, because jazz has racial connotations, you'd be surprised. So it's like, you know, marijuana in a lot of ways has been demonized going back to the early days because black folks enjoyed to smoke weed. I mean, there's so much racial stuff interwoven in these uh, traditions and, and history, et cetera. And New Orleans is a really just example of how that has uh, manifested and metastasized over the years. And so much like I'd be remiss not acknowledging the reality for our musician friends in this era, you know, I, I worry about the good folks in New Orleans and what in their future, you know, really more than any, because they're perpetually on the ropes, perpetually marginalized, the city that time forgot in a lot of ways. And that's been a, a blessing and a curse you know and so the racial thing is uh is really what has been the primary issue for me uh it has my attention and interest of course the political circumstances and the virus too but really the racial division and like allyship and you know and that goes for you know women and sexual assault as well um the reckoning that we're experiencing culturally at this time has been like just excruciating to live through and and probably i've said it a number of times in social and to friends it's the worst time of my life even though i've lived some personal traumas uh this era uh these past six months just what we've experienced as a country and as a culture uh, has been the worst time i can ever remember and you know some of the silver linings are the reckonings that we're experiencing with race relations and the empowerment for women, you know, who are rising up uh, and telling their stories about sexual assault, the patriarchy. And, you know, we got to not only dwell on the gloom and doom of what's going to happen with our economy and our street or restaurants, but we should salute the people who are, you know, speaking up, leading the marching, you know, telling their stories, you know, between all the stuff you saw with you know, big artists like Bassnecker, Nako, um, you know, there's accusations and a number of others. I don't really want to get into who's who. It doesn't matter. They're equally horrific, abhorrent, no matter whether you're a fucking major cat or you're the, you know, weed carrier for, you know, the opening act. Uh, the fact that that's been normalized, just like racism, the fact that the sexual assault or the, the preying on women, the, the fact that that 
uh, as painful as it is, uh, the fact that it's being brought to light and there's been a reckoning and there continues to be, and there's discussions and, and, and events like uh, you mentioned with Elizabeth and Stacy, as well as Reddit threads and open letters from indigenous folks and all kinds of different takes on what's going on with these deified musical folks uh, who felt like they were above, uh, I guess, the common uh, social contract uh, and, and felt like they could do whatever they wanted. Um, I, I hate to see the hurt women, but I love to see them rise up. And I shouldn't just say women, too. I mean, I, I guess there are some men who have been, you know, taken advantage of in one way or another. So anyone who's been using this downtime, this epic pause that we've experienced since the second week of March to do whatever inner work they could that would empower them to speak up and to, uh, you know, let it be known what transpired. Uh, I salute them and I want to stand with them. And uh, I'm less inclined to hear the music as I am to hear their stories. So I hope they continue to, to speak up and then I, like I use anytime I have a platform to let it be known that I, I want to hear from, from them. Yeah. Uh, totally grateful for your solidarity. Truly. Um, one thing I just want to say to that is I hope that the community can kind of develop a little bit more patience for each other as we respond to these, to these things, because I think we have so much unlearning to do and it take, you know, when it comes to racism, when it comes to, to rape culture, it's like the, all of these things were normalized. It's how we were socialized and it's really, it's, it takes so much inner work to undo that. And we really need to be patient with each other while we do that work, because I see so many people just jumping down each other's throats. It, get, it can get so polarizing online. And I don't, I don't think that's an effective way to grow. I think, I don't know what the exact solution is, but I think just being patient while people unlearn and then relearn how to behave socially is just, you know, it's just, it takes time. It's not something that can happen overnight. Right. And then, and then unfortunately in the world we live in with the immediacy of social media and, and the, just the nature of the smartphone era, it's just wildfire. It's just like things get shared and, and commented on and, screenshot and a lot of times the message or the the real medicine gets lost in the drama or the sort of whisper down the lane stuff so I agree patience is a virtue and and restorative justice is an essential part of the equation and, and this is uncharted territory like uh, I was listening to Mimi Page and um, uh, Ill Gates on the Mr. Bill podcast and that was such a profound discussion. And you could see they're right there, like few people closer to that scenario than those two. And they were at a loss. I mean, they don't even know where to take it. They're just talking about it. I mean, you hear Bill Gates is, is in a bad way, just, just hearing his perspective and how devastated he was to just be, have like drank the Kool-Aid and, and defended him and, uh, you know, it's just interesting to hear everybody's process. And again, patience, like just not everyone has to like be judge, jury and, and executioner right away. We just got to work through it. And, you know, from your lips to jaw ears, let people 
be patient and have empathy and respect for trusting the process. Easier said than done. Well, again, man, I want to thank you so much just for allowing so much of your time to be taken up by talking to us. Hey, man, it was fun, dude. I didn't realize it was so long. It's great. You know, I just, I know the world is a really dark place, and I just, I really hope you continue to stay up. I'm going to try one day at a time, man. You do the same, both of you. I'm, uh, I'm relieved to know that we're relatively neighbors, Elizabeth, so whenever the the bass drops, we'll have to go dance. And Wes, I hope to make your acquaintance in person one day soon-ish yeah man i mean i'll get to tell you this conversation just makes me want to pack my bags and head out there hey maybe one day man when the stars went took me till i was 35 so you never know yeah you know you're always welcome wes and b whenever this is all over we'll have you over for shabbat because ethan and i are religious too we're gonna we'll probably be back in new york for rosh hashanah we'll go to the symphony and then we'll go hustle some mark farina all night long it'll be great whenever that day comes but someday that sounds awesome well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, again, it was an honor and a privilege and really interesting to go through the suitcase that is my life. I feel like most of the time you're just shoving stuff in it and then stomping on it on top of the bed, trying to get it shut and sew it together. So to like open it up and go through it, it was really, uh, it was rewarding in a humbling way and sobering and, and also reaffirming. So thank you for offering. Oh, I'm incredibly glad to hear that. Thank you for unpacking. Hey, man. It's what we do. So that was our conversation with B. Getz. And, uh, you know, Elizabeth, what did you think about him? I just can't wait to meet him now. I'm just so excited that he meets, that he lives in the Bay Area. I'm so excited that our tastes intersect a bit. I'm excited to go see Mark Farina with him for sure. Um, and he really, you know, like you described him as a historian and he, he really is. And it was just, I really appreciated his, his candid story about his struggle with addiction and how that kind of impacted his experience with the whole community and how he grew with it and because of it. So I, I always appreciate when people candidly share their stories like that. It's, it's fun to get super personal. So, um, I just can't wait to meet him. Yeah. He's a really good dude. And I hope to be there when you guys do get to meet up. And, you know, another thing I appreciate about the interview is how we did take that moment to kind of acknowledge the giant existential crisis going on with the music industry. And, you know, we talked about it in the intro, too, but I just I really want to drive home the point that the music industry needs everyone's help right now. So once again, that website that we talk about is saveourstages.com literally takes less than a minute to make your voice heard. So speak up just because we do not want to quit doing what we do when everything goes back to whatever the new normal might look like. So once again, saveourstages.com, do it. And while you're out there on the internet, we would so appreciate if you followed us on various social media platforms. We are Almost Familiar Pod on Instagram. You can find us at Almost Familiar on Facebook. We're the AF Pod on Twitter. And we'd love to hear from you at almostfamiliarpodcast at gmail.com. Please you know, send us your feedback. Send us what our conversations make you think about what are the what are the experiences and the moments that it brings up for you because that that is the whole that is one of the main points of this for me is is what you remember when you hear other people talk about their experiences and next week or next two weeks because we're on that bi-weekly grind we sat down with my really good friend jd vanderweel who you know um i'm pretty heavily involved in the venue side of the music industry 
and he is very heavily in the artist side. You know, I met him building a stage for Ganja White Night when they came and played our venue. And uh, I'll tell the story on the actual episode how him and I became to be friends, but he is a total workhorse. You know, he does things from stage building to visual designs to artist management and just one of the most fun, loving and kind people I ever know. And he's just one of those dudes that I'm really glad is in the music industry because he just loves the music the same way that we do and that you do too. So make sure you tune in next time for a chat with JD Vanderweel. Thanks so much for letting us take up your precious time. We'll catch you next time on Almost Familiar. Almost Familiar.